0: welcome to season three of come follow me deep dive doctrine and covenants edition this podcast takes a section-by-section approach to the scriptures that are assigned to the come follow me curriculum of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints my name is barry hillam and you can visit my website barryhillam.com to make contact and find new content i hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks from many reliable sources, a short flyover summary of the Doctrine and Covenants section in question, followed by a complete verse-by-verse reading of the text that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of Scripture, trusted scholars, and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Doctrine and Covenants, Section 20. The Otten and Caldwell title for this section is Church, Organization, and Government. This section was given in the summer of 1829, or at least portions thereof were given at that time. Some of this section also seems to have been given after April of 1830, so we'll read more about that in just a moment. This section was given in Fayette, New York, and it was given through the Prophet Joseph Smith. As opposed to previous sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that are directed to specific persons, Doctrine and Covenants section 20 is quite unique. It's really directed to the entire Church. The Lord acknowledges Joseph and Oliver at the beginning of section 20, but He doesn't speak to them specifically, as He has done in previous sections, and nor does the Lord refer to Himself in the first person in this section. Here's what the section heading says for section 20. Revelation on church organization and government given through Joseph Smith the prophet at or near Fayette, New York. Portions of this revelation may have been given as early as summer 1829. The complete revelation known at the time as the Articles and Covenants was likely recorded soon after April 6th of 1830, uh, which was the day that the church was organized. The prophet wrote, quote, we obtained of him, meaning Jesus Christ, the following, by the spirit of prophecy and revelation, which not only gave us much information, but also pointed out to us the precise day upon which, according to his will and commandment, we should proceed to organize his church once more here upon the earth. Let's consider this information in the section heading for just a moment. Susan Black suggests that this section, the Articles and Covenants of the Church, was the first document in this dispensation to be canonized. She says in June of 1830 at the first conference of the church held in Fayette, New York, Joseph Smith asked that the articles and covenants of the church be read aloud. After the reading, the articles and covenants was received by a unanimous voice as the word of God and was thus canonized. Susan Black also writes of the legal document or certificate that would indicate the official incorporation of the church. She says, to date, the certificate of incorporation has not been found. So again, here we're thinking of the organization of the church and the way that it ties into Section 20. A few scholars, says Susan Black, contend that the beginning verses of Section 20 read like a legal document and suggest that these verses may be the missing certificate of incorporation of the church for the state of New York. In August of 1879, President John Taylor invited William C. Staines, to search for the certificate in local government offices in New York. Staines wrote to President Taylor of his extensive but fruitless search. Later researchers also searched for the certificate, but they have not been able to locate the document. That's a fascinating incident, I think, where President Taylor would like to uh, have these articles of incorporation. And again, perhaps, as Sister Black is suggesting here, perhaps it's part of Section 20. Now, coming back for just a moment to the unique nature of Section 20, as it is uh, compared to other sections that are directed to a specific person and uh, that are a revelation coming through Joseph Smith, Section 20 seems to be something closer to a series of inspired writings. And this also is some insight that's given to us from Susan Easton Black. And by the way, this is from her book, 400 Questions and Answers About the Doctrine and Covenants. She writes, Section 20 combines several inspired writings on church doctrines, practices, and procedures by Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. The section was written between June of 1829 and the spring of 1830. The section is reminiscent of creeds or platforms of traditional Christian churches that set forth basic beliefs, standards, expectation of conduct, and responsibility of members. When combined with Sections 21 and 22— Section 20 forms the constitution of the church, or what is referred to as the Mormon creed. It should be noted that verses 65 through 67 were added at a later date. These verses designate additional priesthood offices within the church. There are other additions and changes besides those mentioned. Let's look at the historical background more closely now to section 20. Uh, by appealing to our usual sources, beginning with Stephen C. Harper in his book, Making Sense of the Doctrine and Covenants. He says in summer of 1828, the Lord promised in Doctrine and Covenants section 10 that he would reestablish his church if people were open-hearted. A year later in section 18, the Lord commanded Oliver Cowdery to use the Book of Mormon manuscripts as his source to draft a document on which to found the restored church, Oliver wrote Articles of the Church of Christ, quote-unquote, by putting together doctrines and ordinances from the unpublished Book of Mormon, passages from Joseph's Revelations, and some commentary. But on April 10th of 1830, just a few days after the Church was organized on April 6th, the Lord revealed the Articles and Covenants of the Church, which is Doctrine and Covenants section 20, to Apostles Joseph and Oliver by the gift and power of God. Here is the introduction and timeline from the Doctrine and Covenants student manual. It says in a revelation to the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Lord commanded that his church be organized on April 6th of 1830. Although this revelation, now found as Doctrine and Covenants section 20, was recorded a few days after the church's organization, and remember that Harper just told us that it was on April 10th, portions of it may have been revealed as early as June of 1829. This revelation highlights the importance of the Book of Mormon, outlines responsibilities of priesthood offices, and provides instructions for the ordinances of baptism and the sacrament. Here are some timeline entries now that are found in the Doctrine and Covenant student manual. At the end of March of 1830, the printing of the Book of Mormon was completed. On April 6th of 1830, the church was organized by Joseph Smith in Fayette, New York. Also on April 6th of 1830. Doctrine and Covenants section 21 was received. This is also true for sections 20 and 22 on April 6th of 1830. Uh, it should be noted though that for section 20, portions were likely received months earlier. Then on June 9th of 1830, the first church conference was held in Fayette, New York. Here is some additional historical background to Doctrine and Covenants section 20 that is also found in the Doctrine and Covenants student manual. The Prophet Joseph Smith recorded that in June of 1829, in the home of Peter Whitmer Sr., the voice of God commanded him and Oliver Cowdery to ordain one another as elders, but specified that they should delay the ordination until their brethren could assemble and provide their consent by vote. Also in June, meaning June of 1829, the Lord commanded Oliver Cowdery to help build up the Lord's Church and that phrase is taken from verse 5 of Doctrine and Covenants section eighteen by relying upon the Book of Mormon, which was nearing completion at that time. Subsequently, Oliver compiled a document called Articles of the Church of Christ, which included details about ordinances, priesthood offices, and church procedures as found in the Book of Mormon. This information may have been intended to guide believers until the time when the church would be established. While it is not known exactly when the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants section 20 was received, The prophet Joseph Smith summarized the flow of divine direction. In this manner did the Lord continue to give us instructions from time to time, concerning the duties which now devolved upon us. And among many other things of the kind, we obtained of him the following, by the spirit of prophecy and revelation, which not only gave us much information, but also pointed out to us the precise day upon which, according to his will and commandment, we should proceed to organize his church once again here upon the earth. Uh, that statement can be found in the Joseph Smith papers, by the way. These instructions that Joseph referred to uh, became known as the Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ. The complete text of the Articles and Covenants was written soon after the organizational meeting held on April 6th of 1830 and provides an overview of the beliefs of the Church of Jesus Christ and of offices and ordinances in it. At the first conference of the Church, held in June 9th of 1830, At the home of Peter Whitmer Sr., and again that would be in Fayette, the Articles and Covenants were read and presented to the membership for approval. Over the next few years, the Articles and Covenants, now known as Doctrine and Covenants Section 20, was amended from time to time as the prophet Joseph Smith continued to receive revelation concerning the structure of the church. For example, Doctrine and Covenants section 20 verses 65-67 through 67 was added after the office of high priest was revealed in Kirtland, Ohio, in June of 1831. We can see evidence of that in Doctrine and Covenants section 52. Here now is the background to section 20 that is given to us in Robinson and Garrett's book A Commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants. They write, Concerning the period following the restoration of the priesthood in 1829 and the organization of the church in 1830, the prophet Joseph Smith wrote, In this manner did the Lord continue to give us instructions from time to time concerning the duties which now devolved upon us, and among many other things of the kind, we obtained of him the following, section 20, by the spirit of prophecy and revelation, which not only gave us much information— but also pointed out to us the precise day upon which, according to his will and commandment, we should proceed to organize his church once more here upon the earth. In the months prior to April 6th of 1830, and probably as early as late 1829, Joseph and Oliver had been writing down their various instructions from the Lord concerning the duties of church members, an early draft of Doctrine and Covenant section 20 was written in late 1829 by Oliver Cowdery and ends with a notation, quote, written in the year of our Lord and Savior, 1829, a true copy of the Articles of the Church of Christ, unquote. Public sale of the Book of Mormon began on the 26th of March in 1830. Eleven days later on Tuesday, April 6th of 1830, following express instructions of the Lord received in the section 20 material, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, together with Hiram Smith, David Whitmer, Samuel Smith, and Peter Whitmer, Jr., organized the Church of Christ according to the laws of the state of New York. The restored church was officially called the Church of Christ at its incorporation in 1830. In 1834, the name of the church was changed to the Church of the Latter-day Saints, and finally on the 26th of April in 1838, the name of the church was changed by revelation to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We can see that in section 115, verse 4. Since the presidency of Harold B. Lee, the initial letter T is always capitalized. The, as in capital T-H-E, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. According to Joseph Smith, the initial organization of the church took place in Fayette, New York, at the Whitmer home, where Joseph and Oliver were then staying. Whilst the Book of Mormon was in the hands of the printer— we still continued to bear testimony and give information, Joseph wrote, as far as we had opportunity, and also made known to our brethren that we had received a commandment to organize the church, and accordingly we met together for that purpose at the house of Mr. Peter Whitmer Sr., being six in number, on Tuesday, the 6th day of April A.D., 1830. Doctrine and Covenant, section 20, which is made up largely of revelatory material received before the church was organized, was known to the early Church as the Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ. It was the first summary statement of the history, doctrines, policies, and procedures of the Church. The first printed version of Sections 20 and 22, in the Painesville Telegraph on 19th of April of 1831, listed Section 20 alone as the Articles and Covenants. Section 22 had a different heading, The first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, the 1833 Book of Commandments, also excluded Section 22 from the Articles and Covenants by printing Section 22 first with its own separate heading, followed by Section 20, which alone was called the Articles and Covenants. Section 22 was included with Section 20 under the heading of Articles and Covenants of the Church in the June 1832, The Evening and the Morning Star. But this evidence must be judged weaker than the combined witness of the Painesville Telegraph, the Book of Commandments, and early, other early witnesses. Robert J. Woodford and Dean C. Jesse also appear to identify Section 20 alone as the Articles and Covenants. At the first conference of the Church held in Fayette, New York on the 9th of June of 1830, Doctrine and Covenant Section 20 was read to the members and unanimously sustained as the Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ, thus making it the first revelation of this dispensation to be formally presented to and sustained by the members. Over the next few years, section 20 was revised and expanded several times to reflect additional revelation to Joseph Smith about the unfolding structure of the church. For example, verses 66-67 through concerning high priests were added after the office of high priest was established by revelation in 1831. As the Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ, Section 20 has often been referred to as the Constitution of the Restored Church, and together with Section 22 and part of Section 27, was sometimes referred to as part of the Mormon Creed. Certainly, this section served as the first priesthood manual or handbook for the Church, and it was read verbatim to the members at many early Church conferences. Section 20, the Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ, along with Sections 21 and 22, are foundation documents for the organization of the restored church. Well, before moving to the text of section 20 itself, we'll look at some additional historical views that are uh, offered to us through the book Saints, for starters, and then uh, Revelations in Context, the Joseph Smith Papers, and uh, a couple essays in church history topics. So let's start with this section from the book Saints, and this is chapter 8, The Rise of the Church of Christ. It says almost immediately after the Book of Mormon was published, Joseph and Oliver prepared to organize the Church of Jesus Christ. Several months earlier, the Lord's ancient apostles Peter, James, and John had appeared to them and conferred on them the Melchizedek Priesthood, as John the Baptist had promised. This additional authority allowed Joseph and Oliver to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost on those they baptized. Peter, James, and John had also ordained them to be apostles of Jesus Christ. Around that time, while staying in the Whitmer home, Joseph and Oliver had prayed for more knowledge about this authority. In reply, the voice of the Lord commanded them to ordain each other elders of the church, but not until believers consented to follow them as leaders in the Savior's church. They were also told to ordain other church officers and confer the gift of the Holy Ghost on those who had been baptized. On April 6th of 1830, Joseph and Oliver met in the Whitmer home to follow the Lord's commandment and organize his church. To fulfill the requirements of the law, they chose six people to become the first members of the new church. Around 40 women and men also crowded into and around the small home to witness the occasion. In obedience to the Lord's earlier instructions, Joseph and Oliver asked the congregation to sustain them as leaders in the kingdom of God and indicate if they believed it was right of them to organize as a church. Every member of the congregation consented, and Joseph laid his hands on Oliver's head and ordained him an elder of the church. Then they traded places, and Oliver ordained Joseph. Afterward, they administered the bread and wine of the sacrament in remembrance of Christ's atonement. Then they laid hands on those they had baptized, confirming them members of the church and giving them the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Lord's Spirit was poured out on those in the meeting, and some in the congregation began to prophesy. Others praised the Lord and all rejoiced together. Joseph also received the first revelation addressed to the whole body of the new church. Behold, there shall be a record kept among you, the Lord commanded, reminding his people that they were to write their sacred history preserving an account of their actions, and witnessing to Joseph's role as prophet, seer, and revelator. Him have I inspired to move the cause of Zion in mighty power for good, the Lord declared. His word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth, in all patience, in faith. For by doing these things the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Later Joseph stood beside a stream and witnessed the baptisms of his mother and father into the church. After years of taking different paths in their search for truth, they were finally united in faith. As his father came out of the water, Joseph took him by the hand, helped him onto the bank, and embraced him. Burying his face into his father's chest, he said, I have lived to see my father baptized into the true church of Jesus Christ. That evening, Joseph slipped away into some nearby woods, his heart bursting with emotion. He wanted to be alone, out of sight of friends and family. In the ten years since his first vision, he had seen the heavens open, felt the Spirit of God, and been tutored by angels. He had also sinned and lost his gift, only to repent, receive God's mercy, and translate the Book of Mormon by his power and grace. Now Jesus Christ had restored his church, and authorized Joseph with the same priesthood that apostles had held anciently when they carried the gospel to the world. The happiness he felt was too much for him to hold in. And when Joseph Knight and Oliver found him later that night, he was weeping, his joy was full, and the work had begun. As we read this entry from Saints, we might remember, by the way, that that, of course, was Joseph's initial question, as he went to the Lord in prayer in what we now call the Sacred Grove, which church should I join? Here's a short entry from Revelations in Context, the stories behind the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, and uh, this small entry is called Build Up My Church, Many of those who accepted that message awaited the organization of a church. About this time, Joseph Smith announced that a revelation specifying that the church should be organized on April 6th of 1830. On that day, 40 or 50 men and women gathered in the small Fayette home of Peter Whitmer Sr. to observe the event. Six of them, Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, and four others, served as the official organizers. They opened the meeting by solemn prayer. Joseph and Oliver asked the other four official members if they would accept them as their spiritual teachers and whether they should proceed to organize the church. Having the consent of the assembled believers, Joseph ordained Oliver Cowdery as an elder in the church, and Oliver did the same for Joseph. Joseph was 24 years old at the time, and Oliver was 23. With authorized men called, sustained, and ordained, it was possible for the church to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We then took bread, blessed it, and brake it with them. Also wine, blessed it, and drank it with them. After the sacrament, Joseph Smith's history records, We then laid our hands on each individual member of the church present, that they might receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and be confirmed members of the church of Christ. The Holy Ghost was poured out upon us to a very great degree. Some prophesied, whilst we all praised the Lord, and rejoiced exceedingly. Here is the historical introduction to the earliest available manuscript of Doctrine and Covenants Section 20, which uh, actually comes from the Microfilm Corporation of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and, and it was acquired in 1947, this copy. It's quite interesting, and it's, um, it's a, a part of the Mormon creed, as it was called in the Painesville, Ohio, Telegraph uh, on the 19th of April in 1831. This can be found on the Joseph Smith Papers website. So the historical introduction to this document says, The Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ set forth the offices, ordinances, and procedures that were to be part of the newly formed Church. On the 9th of June of 1830, at the first conference of the Church following its organization, this document was presented to the membership for approval. The minutes of that meeting recorded Articles and Covenants read by Joseph Smith, Jr., and received by unanimous voice of the whole congregation, which consisted of most of the male members of the Church. The importance of Articles and Covenants to the Church is suggested by the fact that it was the first revelatory document selected for printing in the Church's earliest periodical, The Evening and the Morning Star, and the only one published there twice. In the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, the compilers placed Articles and Covenants as the second section, preceded only by the revelatory preface. In many ways, Articles and Covenants is unique— No other early revelatory text produced by Joseph Smith was presented to a conference of the Church for approbation of the membership. The format and style of Articles and Covenants also differed from other revelations. Rather than the first-person voice of God declaring His will to a specific recipient, as in most of Joseph Smith's early revelations, Articles and Covenants instead begins with a third-person historical account of the founding of the Church and a brief history of Joseph Smith. In subsequent paragraphs, the document makes several declarations of belief using the first-person plural statement, We Know. As with some of Joseph Smith's other revelatory texts, Articles and Covenants was amended from time to time. The most substantive revisions appear to have been made in preparation for its publication in the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants. The dating of the first completed draft of Articles and Covenants is uncertain, Joseph Smith may have begun working on the document as early as the summer of 1829 the same time that Oliver Cowdery prepared his articles of the church of christ but the copy of articles and covenants that John Whitmer copied into revelation book 1 likely in the spring or summer of 1831 bears the date of the 10th of April 1830 we can remember that that's what harper told us suggesting that the document may not have been finalized until sometime after the formal organization of the church On the 6th of april of 1830 whitmer however positioned it between two early january 1831 revelations months out of the chronological order he had faithfully kept up to that point when articles and covenants was first published in the evening and the morning star in 1832 it was left undated in the book of commandments in 1833 it was dated june of 1830 likely reflecting the date of the conference at which it was accepted by the church And When it was published in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, the date previously published in the Book of Commandments was dropped, and it was again left undated. No other revelations in the Book of Commandments had dates similarly discarded by the editors of the Doctrine and Covenants without a different date being inserted. Further complicating the dating question, Joseph Smith's history places the reception of Articles and Covenants in an 1829 context immediately following the discussion of the heavenly communications in the home of Peter Whitmer Sr. in June of 1829. Referring to these experiences, Joseph Smith's history recounts, In this manner did the Lord continue to give us instructions from time to time, concerning the duties which now devolved upon us, and among many other things of the kind, we obtained of him the following, that is, the Articles and Covenants, by the Spirit of Prophecy and Revelation which not only gave us much information, but also pointed out to us the precise day upon which, according to his will and commandment, we should proceed to organize his church once again here upon the earth. In this account, the date on which the Church of Christ was to be organized was received by Revelation in June of 1829. However, if Articles and Covenants was in fact first drafted in 1829, then there were revisions to the text following the organization of the church because the earliest extant versions all speak of the formation of the church on the 6th of April of 1830 as an accomplished fact, not a pending event. Without an extant 1829 version of the text, it is impossible to determine how much of the document may have been written before April of 1830. While it is possible that the text was only revised following the organization to reflect the establishment of the church as a past event, It is also possible that much of the content reflecting the history and the duties of church officers was added after the formation of the church. Notwithstanding the unusual aspect of the Articles and Covenants, early church members seemed to view it as they did other of Joseph Smith's revelations. In Revelation Book 1, John Whitmer's heading described it as given to Joseph the seer by the gift and power of God. Oliver Cowdery later inserted, and Oliver an apostle to that phrase, after seer. According to Joseph Smith's history in the summer of 1830, Joseph responded to an angry letter from Cowdery, disputing a passage about baptism from Articles and Covenants, by asking Cowdery, "...by what authority he took upon him to command me to alter or erase, to add or diminish to, or from, a revelation or commandment from Almighty God." This report in his history indicates that Joseph Smith considered Articles and Covenants to be a revelation at least as early as June of 1830. The version presented here is from the Painesville Telegraph. While this text and the copy in Revelation Book 1, the two earliest extant copies, are very similar, certain clarifications and the greater specificity found in Revelation Book 1 indicate that it represents a later iteration of Articles and Covenants, for instance, the text in Revelation book 1 specifically states how often the elders were to meet in conference, quote, the several elders composing this church of Christ are to meet in conference once in three months to do church business whatsoever is necessary, etc. This precision is lacking in the telegraph version, which simply reads, quote, the several elders composing the church of Christ are to meet at each of its meetings to do church business whatsoever is necessary, etc., suggesting that this copy is related to an earlier version of the text that had not yet delineated the frequency of conferences. Other significant differences between the telegraph version and other early versions of the Revelation are identified in annotation to the text. Differences in punctuation have not been noted. Much of the punctuation in the version below was probably introduced by telegraph editor Heber D. Howe, rather than being copied from a prior manuscript version. Remember here, again, that with the Joseph Smith papers, the goal is to find the earliest extant version to read from, and so that's uh, why we're having this discussion about uh, Revelation Book 1 that was penned by John Whitmer versus this very interesting version that is found uh, in the telegraph the telegraph claimed it had obtained its copy of Articles and Covenants from the hand of Martin Harris, one of the original proprietors of the Gold Bible speculation. While this story cannot be corroborated, many years later a Kirtland resident claimed in a letter reflecting on the events of early 1831 that Martin Harris, one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, in the course of the winter, came to this place with a revelation from Joseph to the saints And they were commanded not to let the Gentiles see it or know anything of its purport. One evening he was in a large social circle in deep conversation when I discovered the revelation in his hat, pocketed it, and with a young man by the name of Tenur, T A N E U R, withdrew unobserved from the company, copied it, and returned it to his hat before the company broke up, and in a few days copies of it were circulating among the Gentiles, very much to their consternation and mystification. The telegraph included two other revelations at the end of the text of Articles and Covenants as though they were part of the same document. The texts of Revelation on the 16th of April of 1830, which is Doctrine and Covenants section 22, concerning the requirement of re-baptism for those baptized previously, and Revelation given around August of 1830, which is Doctrine and Covenants section 27, concerning the sacrament, sequentially follow the text of Articles and Covenants without any clear break or heading to designate the beginning of a new document. The editor of the Telegraph probably presented these three revelations as a single document because the text he copied also ran the three texts together. This connection was not unique to the version published in the Telegraph. Two other early versions of Articles and Covenants, including the first version published in a church-owned newspaper, also amended the 16th of April 1830 revelation. Since three of the earliest four versions of Articles and Covenants include the 16th of April 1830 Revelation, it is possible that the text presented on the June 9th of 1830 Conference also included it. Early church members may have seen the 16th of April 1830 Revelation as clarifying the topic of baptism again, we're talking about Section 22, in Articles and Covenants, and thus may have appended this revelation to their copies for convenience. Here, the telegraph version of Articles and Covenants is presented without the text of the two other revelations because the official register of the revelations, Revelation Book 1, separated them. Eber Howe's introduction of Articles and Covenants in the telegraph provides some insight into how the document was viewed in early 1831. Howe called Articles and Covenants a confessional, apparently recognizes similarities between its format and the published creedal documents of other religions that also outlined the governing beliefs, principles, and offices of their churches. Dubbing Articles and Covenants the Mormon Creed and bracketing it with sarcastic commentary, Howe also referenced it as one of the commandments and revelations of heaven. So it's quite interesting here, I think, that this version of section 20 that's provided on the Joseph Smith paper's website was was published under these conditions, and that the person that brought it forward in the telegraph well, he, he didn't have pure motives and, in fact, offered sarcastic commentary, calling it the Mormon Creed. Here's a short entry from Church History Topics, uh, an essay called The Founding Meeting of the Church of Christ. It says on Tuesday of April 6th of 1830, Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery, and others convened to organize the Church of Christ They had anticipated this meeting since the summer of 1829 when revelations directed joseph and oliver to establish a church as soon as the book of mormon could be published and believers could be gathered no minutes of the meeting have survived but a few sources including a revelation received on the occasion indicate some of what transpired the meeting opened with prayer and the assembly sustained joseph and oliver as elders and teachers in the church joseph and oliver then ordained each other as church elders The participants in the meeting partook of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Joseph and Oliver laid hands on the heads of those who had previously been baptized to give them the gift of the Holy Ghost and confirm them members of the church, and Joseph received the revelation now found in Doctrine and Covenants section 21. Between the 6th of April and June 9th, when the first church conference was held, Joseph and Oliver organized branches in Fayette, Manchester, and Colesville, New York, a few early accounts confuse the locations of these meetings, suggesting the April 6th organizational meeting took place in Manchester rather than in Fayette. An early manuscript copy of Doctrine and Covenant section 21 includes a notation suggesting the revelation was given in Manchester. William W. Phelps used this notation when he prepared the revelation for publication in the 1833 Book of Commandments. Other records linked to Phelps and Orson Pratt Neither of whom was present at the organizational meeting, also named Manchester as the location of the April 6th meeting. However, several early documents produced by Joseph and Oliver, together with later printings of the Doctrine and Covenants, either state that the meeting occurred at Fayette or omit references to Manchester. Accordingly, most historians concur with the principal observers and locate the founding meeting in Fayette. Now finally, before we move to the text, here's a very short entry, uh, a glossary article really from the Joseph Smith Papers called Articles and Covenants. It says a foundational document presented, meaning the Articles and Covenants, is a foundational document presented at the first conference of the church for the approval of church members. The Articles and Covenants included a brief historical prologue, a declaration of beliefs, and a description of the offices, ordinances, and procedures of the church. The document was included in early manuscript compilations of Joseph Smith's Revelations, printed in early secular and church newspapers, and published in the Book of Commandments and the Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph Smith's Revelations also referenced the Articles and Covenants, and leaders of the church admonished church members to follow its guidelines. Well, with that, let's move to Section 20, the text itself. And before reading that text, let's look at the topical divisions that are provided in the text itself. We can first see that in verses 1 through 16 we will find a discussion of the Book of Mormon and how it is that the Book of Mormon proves the divinity of the latter-day work. Verse 8 will say that Joseph was given power from on high and the means uh, were prepared to translate the Book of Mormon. And verse 9 will talk about how it is a record of a fallen people. In verses 17 through 28, The doctrines of creation, fall, and atonement, and baptism are affirmed. So quite interesting to see those key doctrines being established here in this document, Uh, the creation, the fall, and the atonement, those three things that uh, Elder McConkie once referred to as the pillars of eternity. In verses 29 through 37, we will find the laws that are governing repentance, justification, sanctification, and baptism. That's where these are set forth. Verse 37 is particularly notable as it discusses the, uh, well, as it says, by way of commandment of the church concerning the manner of baptism. So that's something we'll come back to. Then in verses 38 through 67, we'll read of the duties of elders, priests, and teachers, and also of the duties of deacons. And all of these will be summarized as we move through these particular verses. Then, in verses 68 through 74, the duties of members, uh, the blessing of children, and the mode of baptism are revealed. Then, finally, in verses 75 through 84, the sacramental prayers and regulations governing church membership are given. And with that overview, let's return now to verse 1. The rise of the Church of Christ in these last days being 1,830 years since the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh, it being regularly organized and established agreeable to the laws of our country by the will and commandments of God in the fourth month and on the sixth day of the month which is called April. Now, although this verse flows right into verse 2, there's lots of commentary available on the dating that's described here, so let's read some of that now. From the Doctrine and Covenant student manual, we read, Following the deaths of the ancient apostles, unauthorized changes were made to the organization, doctrine, and ordinances of the Church of Jesus Christ. After centuries of apostasy, the Lord restored his gospel and his church through the prophet Joseph Smith. This restoration included the organization of the Church of Christ on April 6th of 1830. President Gordon B. Hinckley testified of the destiny of the Lord's Church. He said Joseph Smith and his associates met in the inconspicuous log house on the Peter Whitmer farm in the quiet village of Fayette, New York, and organized the Church of Christ. From that modest beginning, something truly remarkable has happened. Great has been the history of this work. Our people have endured every kind of suffering indescribable have been their sacrifices. Immense beyond belief have been their labors. But out of all this fiery crucible has come something glorious. Today we stand on the summit of the years and look about us. From the original six members has grown a vast family of worshipers. From that quiet village has grown a movement that today is scattered through some 160 nations of the earth. Within its vast embrace are members of from many nations who speak many tongues. It is a phenomenon without precedent. As the tapestry of its past has unrolled, a beautiful pattern has come to view. It finds expression in the lives of a happy and wonderful people. It portends marvelous things yet to come. While President Hinckley had such a beautiful way with words, and uh, who better to comment on the significance of the organization of the church during this time, and who could better and more eloquently compare? Uh, that uh, small band of believers at that time with uh, this worldwide church that we see today and of course now it is even more worldwide with um, the recent announcement of even more temples to be built the church's worldwide presence is is really ever growing we often speak of the six members who were present at the Whitmer cabin or the Whitmer uh, farm uh, at this time but the truth, is that there were 40 to 50 people present. and So this, this little house was bursting at the seams, and there were probably people uh, even outside the doors of this cabin at that time. And so that's quite interesting. And that too, I think, is portentous, because that has been the nature of, of the church from the very beginning. And even to this day, it is still bursting at the seams as a worldwide church. And even in the midst of a pandemic, more temples are being built uh, in in many many places that take it so far away from this small uh, village of Fayette, New York. President Hinckley does not mention it here, but uh, it seems so appropriate to call attention to Daniel's prophecy about a stone uh, rolling forth from the mountain without hands. He calls the worldwide church, President Hinckley calls the worldwide church, uh, a phenomenon without precedent. And that's right, without hands, uh, as Daniel put it. As the tapestry of its past has unrolled, a beautiful pattern has come to view. President Hinckley was fond, I think, of writing of threads and tapestries. Well, here's something from uh, Susan Easton Black, as she speaks of the organization of the church on April 6th of 1830. She asks, when did the church become known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as opposed to the Church of Christ? And quite interestingly, Uh, We can see uh, how the name of the church evolved before it was formalized in section 115, and that's what Sister Black will talk about here. I recently visited the Kirtland Temple and could see that uh, even on the front of that great structure. And I'm looking at a photo that I took uh, not long ago that says House of the Lord built by the Church of the Latter-day Saints in AD 1834. So we can see that it took a little while Uh, before section 115 was given, and the church became formally known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, here's what Sister Black says on this subject. The name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was given by the Lord in Revelation to Joseph Smith on April 26th of 1838. So that, of course, postdates the sign that I have recently read on the Kirtland Temple, or of course, that can be seen in photos of the Kirtland Temple in 1834, The Church had been known as the Church of Christ from 1830 to 1834, and the Church of the Latter-day Saints from 1834 to 1838. The Church is commonly but unofficially referred to as the Mormon Church and its members as Mormons because of their belief in the Book of Mormon, but use of the word Mormon in reference to the Church is, quote, unsatisfactory to Church members because it does not convey the conviction that Jesus Christ is the head of the Church and that members strive to live Christian lives, unquote. Of course, this from Sister Black predates um, President Nelson's recent conference talk and his recent direction to emphasize the true name of the Lord's Church and to remind all that the term Mormon was originally meant as an epithet. We revere Mormon himself so much and the book that bears his name, but never do we want uh, others to believe that we worship anyone but the Lord Jesus Christ. And President Nelson made it clear that it's very important to the Lord personally that his church is called by the right name. Susan Black, in her book, 400 Questions and Answers about the Doctrine and Covenants, also talks about something that we read about uh, just very recently, uh, that there is some confusion and controversy over where the church was organized, and uh, that, that has to do with the writings of some, as we read a moment ago that uh, were, were apparently misguided as, as, as to where the church was organized and had written that it took place in Manchester. So I'll read her clarifying comments here. She says, The discrepancy over where the church was organized arises from an article printed in the LDS newspaper, The Evening and the Morning Star, and Orson Pratt's pamphlet titled Interesting Account of Several Remarkable Visions and of the Late Discovery of Ancient American Records. The newspaper and pamphlet tell of the church being organized in Manchester, New York. The writings of Joseph Smith reveal the church was organized in Fayette, New York. Quote, We had received a commandment to organize the church, and accordingly we met together for that purpose at the house of Mr. Peter Whitmer Sr. in Fayette, New York, being six in number on Tuesday, the 6th of April, A.D. 1830. Now, in the commentary that's provided here in connection with verse 1, we come back to the dating that that were given in that verse, and we can talk about how it correlates with the timing of the organization of the church. Susan Easton Black has written in a conference address given on April sixth of nineteen seventy three, President Harold B. Lee spoke of April sixth, commemorating the anniversary of the organization of the Church, and, quote, the anniversary of the birth of the Savior, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. President Spencer W. Kimball also spoke of April sixth being the date of the Savior's birth, Joseph Smith wrote of the Savior being crucified on April 6th. He said, On the 6th of April in the land of Zion near Independence, Missouri, we met for instruction and the service of God at the ferry on Big Blue River, it being just 1,800 years since the Savior laid down his life that men might have everlasting life. Although the day and month of the Savior's birth and death has been spoken of by holy prophets, the year of his birth and death has not been identified. Now this from Robinson and Garrett. Many have taken this reference, and again, that's uh, the phrase being 1,830 years. Many have taken this reference to be a literal count of the years from the birth of Jesus to the organization of the church. On the 6th of April of 1833, the third anniversary of that organization, Joseph Smith himself wrote The day was spent in a very agreeable manner in giving and receiving knowledge which appertained to this last kingdom it being just 1,800 years since the Savior laid down his life, that men might have everlasting life, and only three years since the church had come out of the wilderness preparatory for the last dispensation. On the other hand, several writers, including some modern apostles and prophets, have urged caution in interpreting Doctrine and Covenants section 20 verse 1 as an exact count of years. Among these are Hiram M. Smith and J. Reuben Clark Jr. and Bruce R. McConkie. It is possible, that the 1,830 years is just an elaborate way of referring to the year 1830 without being intended as an actual count of years. Elder McConkie's summation is helpful when he said, We do not believe it is possible with the present state of our knowledge, including that which is known both in and out of the Church, to state with finality when, in other words, in which year the natal day of the Lord Jesus Christ actually occurred. So I think this is a, an even-handed approach to this topic by Robertson and Garrett that uh, certainly deserves consideration. James E. Talmage once wrote, and uh, this can be found in Jesus the Christ, As to the season of the year in which Christ was born, there is among the learned as, a, as great a diversity of opinion as that relating to the year itself. It is claimed by many biblical scholars that December 25th, a day celebrated in Christendom as Christmas, cannot be the correct date. We believe April 6th to be the birthday of Jesus Christ, as indicated in Revelation of the present dispensation already cited, and again there Elder Talmadge refers to to verse 1 of section 20, in which that day is made without qualification the completion of 1,830th year since the coming of the Lord in the flesh. Then Talmadge says, this acceptance is admittedly based on faith in modern revelation, and in no wise is set forth as the result of chronological research or analysis. We believe that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judea on April sixth, BC 1. Well, finally, by way of commentary to verse 1, we find this from Robertson and Garrett, and they key in on this phrase that says, agreeable to the laws. They say this likely refers in particular to an 1813 New York statute entitled An Act to Provide for the Incorporation of Religious Societies, which stated that between three and nine individuals must be listed as members and responsible parties in the foundation documents of any religious organization. In this verse, and again in Doctrine and Covenants section 44 verses 4-5, through and in section 58 verse 22, the Lord explicitly instructs the church to observe the laws of the land. Returning to the text, then, verse 2 says, which commandments were given to Joseph Smith, Jr., who was called of God and ordained an apostle of Jesus Christ to be the first elder of this church? Robinson and Garrett say, with reference to the phrase ordained an apostle, and then in a moment they'll talk about this phrase first elder, but as to this phrase ordained an apostle, they say the wording here, particularly the use of the past tense, clearly implies that Joseph Smith and Oliver had received both the Melchizedek priesthood and the apostolic keys before the organization of the church. Even in 1829, uh, Oliver Cowdery had by commandment written down a revelation foreshadowing Doctrine and Covenant, section 20, in which he declared himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Moreover, the language of John the Baptist, as recorded in Joseph Smith's history, and which is clearly reflected in Doctrine and Covenant, section 20, verses 2 through 3, seems to imply that Joseph and Oliver would be ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood and that only then would Joseph be called the first elder of the church and he, meaning Oliver Cowdery the second. We know positively that Joseph and Oliver already had the Melchizedek priesthood by September of 1830 from Doctrine and Covenants section 27 verse 12 that says, And also with Peter and James and John, whom I have sent unto you, by whom I have ordained you and confirmed you to be apostles." Now coming back to this phrase, the uh, first elder of this church. Uh, this is a church administrative designation and does not refer to a special office in the priesthood. Joseph and Oliver were already apostles and thereby also elders. In exercising their authority as apostles and elders, Joseph was to have administrative precedence over Oliver. Their designation as first and second elders had nothing to do with the sequence of their ordination but rather with their authority, in the infancy of the church there was no first presidency, only a first and second elder who held the keys of the apostleship. Verse 3, and to Oliver Cowdery, who was also called of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to be the second elder of this church and ordained under his hand. Joseph Fielding Smith has written in his book Church History and Modern Revelation uh, the following with reference to the use of the word apostle in verses 2 and 3. He says in this section, in section 20, see also verse 12 of section 27, the Lord declares that Joseph Smith Jr. and Oliver Cowdery were called of God and ordained apostles. This is verily true. However, attention has already been called to the fact that Peter, James, and John conferred the Melchizedek priesthood with its keys upon them and not any office. Moreover, that by command of the angel, and later the voice of God, Joseph Smith ordained Oliver Cowdery an elder, and Oliver Cowdery ordained Joseph Smith an elder on the 6th day of April of 1830, when the church was organized. Again, by command of the Lord, Joseph Smith was ordained a high priest in the church on June 3rd of 1831, and Oliver Cowdery was ordained to the same office on August 28th of that same year. Later they received other ordinations. It is very improbable that either of these men would be ordained to the office of apostle before they were ordained elders or high priests. This has been a mystery to some. It will all be clear enough if we keep in mind that these two men received under the hands of the ancient apostles the Melchizedek priesthood, out of which the Lord has said, all the offices come. And as President Joseph F. Smith has said, the priesthood is greater than any of its offices, and when Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery stood in the presence of holy heavenly messengers and under their hands had the priesthood conferred upon them, they became apostles, that is to say, special witnesses for Christ, even before any office had been conferred upon any man in this dispensation. An apostle is an especial witness for Christ, and these two men were fully prepared by testimony to officiate as such before all the world, before the organization of the church, and the office of elder had been conferred upon them. So that is President Smith's explanation of how it could be that Joseph and Oliver were apostles uh, even before they had been given these other offices within the Melchizedek Priesthood. Verse 4, And this according to the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory, both now and forever. Amen. Verse 5, After it was truly manifested unto this first elder that he had received a remission of his sins, he was entangled again in the vanities of the world. So there's an amen at the end of verse 4, kind of uh, completing that very first uh, opening statement. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Joseph Smith and his story. So again, as we read earlier, uh, this is unique. It's in the third person. Uh, this doesn't read like most of the other sections which come through Joseph Smith and are directed to a specific person. So Robinson and Garrett say that it was truly manifested to Joseph uh, that he had received a remission of his sins. That's quite interesting, and this happened during his first vision, really, if we think about it. Then the phrase entangled again in the vanities. Uh, in other words, Joseph was a normal teenager. and After his vision, he made the same kinds of foolish errors teenagers often make, Though he said, No one need suppose me guilty of any great or malignant sins. So that was an important feature of Joseph's story as it's presented in the canonized version of the first vision. He talks about these foibles and foolish errors. And uh, here this comes again in these very articles uh, of, of organization of the church. It uh, seems necessary and important to the Lord to point this, this fact out, which I, I think is, is really instructive for us. Uh, We can find this in the Smith and Sojal Doctrine and Covenants commentary uh, with reference to the phrase that this first elder, Joseph, was entangled again in the vanities of the world. It seems that this has reference uh, to Joseph Smith's early youth between the time of his great vision of the Father and the Son and the coming of Moroni. The prophet calls attention to this folly during that period but also says that no one need think that he was guilty of any grievous sin. But being shunned by those who should have befriended him, he says, I was left to all kinds of temptations. And mingling with all kinds of society, I frequently fell into many foolish errors and displayed the weakness of youth and the foibles of human nature. We can think here, too, I think, about uh, Joseph's life as a young man, as a laborer, and uh, the company that he would have kept uh, during those episodes. Joseph had received a marvelous manifestation of divine favor, in the answer given to his first prayer, but afterwards he was entangled again in the vanities of the world. In his autobiography, the prophet ascribes this in part to the unkind treatment accorded him by the religious people. He was young and inexperienced, they ostracized and slandered him, and consequently he was left to all kinds of temptations. And this is placed on record for our instruction. Christians cannot be too careful in their conduct among their fellow men. It is a mark of integrity and veracity that this weakness of youth is made as prominent in the record and the divine manifestations. In the sacred scriptures, the failings of Moses or the difficulties between Paul and Peter are recorded, as well as their good qualities and victories over sin. A mere human history would conceal such imperfections as far as possible. God places them on record for the instruction of others." A fascinating statement here, I think. Once again, let me read this. A mere human history would conceal such imperfections, but this history is coming from God's perspective himself, and he chooses or elects to include this fact to remind us this thing that we learned in that other canonized account, uh, that Joseph did indeed uh, fall prey to temptation and had foibles that were incident to someone of his age and, of course, to his unique circumstances. Then verse 6 says, But after repenting and humbling himself sincerely through faith, God ministered unto him by an holy angel whose countenance was as lightning. Now, we've seen that phrase before. His countenance was as lightning. And whose garments were pure and white above all other whiteness. So here, as uh, Smith and Sojol point out, we're talking about Moroni's visit. When he repented... And sought God in prayer, the angel Moroni was sent to him. This was another marvelous manifestation that his repentance had been accepted and his sins forgiven. Verse 7 And gave unto him commandments which inspired him. Well, what does that have reference to? Well, we seem to be talking about the angel Moroni's visit, and we can think of all of the scriptural passages that Moroni quoted to Joseph on that occasion. Verse eight, as we continue to summarize the early ministry of Joseph Smith and gave him power from on high by the means which were before prepared to translate the Book of Mormon. We might wonder at this phrase, the means by which were before prepared. We can think of the Urim and Thummim. We can think of this incident when the brother of Jared ascended the Mount uh, called Shalem and when he uh, he took stones as an offering to the Lord that were used to illuminate his barges Uh, But the Lord gave him two stones in return that came from some other place, it seems, and those became uh, the Urim and Thummim. So those seem to be the means which were before prepared to translate the Book of Mormon. Now as we come to verse 9, we move into a discussion of the Book of Mormon itself, which contains a record of a fallen people and the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and to the Jews also. There's a lot in that verse because uh, it's it, it, to, to summarize the Book of Mormon by calling it a record of a fallen people is a very uh, high-altitude way of discussing this book. And then it is that it contains the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's the order? Well, to the Gentiles and to the Jews also. So here's lots of commentary on this particular verse, beginning with Church History and Modern Revelation from Joseph Fielding Smith. He says, the Lord has stated a number of times that the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel. So that's what we're going to key in here, key in on here, the fullness of the gospel, or all things written concerning the foundation of the church and gospel. Some people have wondered in regard to this when in the Book of Mormon there is nothing recorded pertaining to the eternity of marriage and baptism for the dead. A careful reading will show that the Lord does not say that it contains all of the principles in their fullness but the fullness necessary for the foundation of his church and his gospel. Let us not forget that baptism for the dead is not a new doctrine, but merely the application of the principle of baptism for the dead. However, the meaning of the word fullness, as used in these scriptures, is abundance or sufficient for the purposes intended. Here is more commentary on this phrase, fullness of the gospel, from Robertson and Garrett. They say the fullness of the gospel was a much narrower and more limited phrase in the early church and in its scriptures than it has become to contemporary LDS usage. The correct meaning of the phrase varies according to the knowledge of those who use it. In scripture, the Lord defines his gospel, strictly speaking, as faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, and the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. The Book of Mormon is a mighty witness of these principles, containing more information on them, including how the ordinances are to be performed, than even the Bible has. Thus, the Book of Mormon contains the fullness of the gospel. That does not mean it contains every teaching, says Ezra Taft Benson, every doctrine ever revealed. Rather, it means that in the Book of Mormon, we will find the fullness of those doctrines required for our salvation. That comes out of President Benson's talk, The Keystone of Our Religion, uh, from 1992. Robinson and Garrett continue, Though it is common for contemporary saints to use the phrase, the fullness of the gospel, to mean all that the Lord has revealed to us in the latter days up to the present time, The Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants use the term to refer only to the first principles, to the basic good news of Christ, consisting of faith, repentance, baptism by immersion, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. For example, while the Doctrine and Covenants solidly affirms here and again at Doctrine and Covenants section 27 verse 5 that the Book of Mormon already contains the fullness of the gospel, it is self-evident that the Book of Mormon does not contain the many wonderful things revealed to the saints after 1830, including a knowledge of the degrees of glory, celestial marriage, and vicarious work for the dead. In October of 1831, William E. McClellan was blessed, quote, for receiving mine everlasting covenant, even the fullness of my gospel. That's out of section 66, verse 2. Yet section 66 was received in 1831, long before many of the higher principles and ordinances, such as the ordinances of the temple, for example, had been revealed to the saints. As gospel means good news, So the fullness of the gospel refers to the full message of redemption in Jesus Christ, redemption from the fall of Adam and its effects through the atonement of Christ. Those doctrines, principles, and ordinances necessary to remedy the effects of the fall and restore us to the celestial kingdom of God constitute the fullness of the gospel in the technical, scriptural sense. After the publication of the Book of Mormon, however, there continued to be great and important revelations to the saints about the nature of God's kingdom. They learned about degrees of glory, See section 76, salvation of the dead, C section 128, exaltation in the celestial kingdom, and celestial marriage, See sections 131 and 132. They also received those higher ordinances that would take them beyond mere redemption from the fall and would lead them to become as their heavenly parents are. Because it has, understandably, become common practice in the modern church to use the phrase fullness of the gospel to mean all that God has revealed, students and teachers of the Doctrine and Covenants should be aware of all the distinctions between the scriptural and the contemporary usage and the possible ambiguities involved. Now Robinson and Garrett offer brief commentary on this phrase in verse 9 to the Gentiles. In this dispensation, which includes the times of the Gentiles, the Book of Mormon and the Gospel are to go to the Gentiles first, and then to the Jews. This order of things fulfills the ancient declaration that the last, meaning the Gentiles, shall be first, and the first, meaning the Jews, shall be last. We even read that phrase in Luke chapter thirteen, verse thirty. Robertson and Garrett point out, but also in First Nephi chapter thirteen, verse forty-two, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Verse ten which was given by inspiration, meaning the Book of Mormon, and is confirmed to others by the ministering of angels and is declared unto the world by them. This, I think, can be interpreted very broadly by readers of section 20 to suggest that uh, it can be confirmed to us through the ministering of angels. Uh, Robinson and Garrett uh, apply this more specifically, however, by saying that confirmed to others means to the three witnesses and the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon. We know of the truth of that because of the account given of the three and then of the eight witnesses and the way in which they were visited by an angel. But we can see that Moroni uh, was very explicit in his discussion about the ministering of angels in Moroni chapter 7 and those that comes from the writings of his father. And then of course in Moroni chapter 10 he speaks of the way in which all of us can receive a witness through the power of the Holy Ghost that the Book of Mormon is true. We know from other sources, including uh, Second Nephi chapter 32, I believe, and a very compelling talk by President Oaks many years ago, that when we are spoken to by the Holy Ghost, uh, that process can sometimes be mediated uh, by the ministry of angels. So given that, I think it might be correct to say that all who read the Book of Mormon with the purity of intent that Moroni described Uh, can know of its truthfulness uh, through, the, of course, the manifestation of the Holy Ghost, but also, at times, I think, through the ministering of angels. Verse 11, proving to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true, and that God does inspire men and call them to his holy work in this age and generation, as well as in generations of old. I think the word proving here is very interesting because uh, in our modern usage of that term, Uh, We imagine that proving can only be done through empirical evidence so that if the book of Mormon and the truth of that book was to be proven to people today, they would see the gold plates from whence the record came. I had a recent discussion with a friend about this, in fact, and he said, well, where are these golden plates? And so it is that our concept of prove or proving uh, has to do with this type of empirical evidence. And that's very understandable. However, proving here is from the perspective of the Lord. And the most uh, sure kind of certitude that can come to readers of the Book of Mormon is that which comes through the ministering of angels and through the Holy Ghost. Here's something that Robinson and Garrett have written on this, uh, on this point. The Holy Scriptures are true. Often, members of the Church will use portions of the Bible, Isaiah for example, in an attempt to interpret the Book of Mormon, or to prove its truth. This is backwards, however. The Lord's intent is just the opposite. It is the Book of Mormon that proves the Bible is true, and that provides the keys by which the Bible should be interpreted. For example, though some biblical scholars deny that Jesus himself could have composed or taught the Sermon on the Mount, the Book of Mormon shows that Jesus did. Though scholars theorize that much of the book of Isaiah was not written by Isaiah but by other writers after the Babylonian conquest in 588-587 to BC, the Book of Mormon shows this theory to be false. Because Lehi left with the brass plates before the fall of Jerusalem, and because the brass plates at that time already contained a nearly complete copy of Isaiah, if the Book of Mormon is true, then Isaiah cannot have been written after 600 BC. The way in which the Book of Mormon proves the Bible is true is not scientifically or empirically, but with the logic of the Spirit, for if a person learns by the Spirit's witness that the Book of Mormon is true, then he or she also knows that the Bible, of which the Book of Mormon testifies, is true. Also, the very existence of the Book of Mormon testifies to the world that the heavens are still open, and that the Lord of heaven who spoke to prophets and apostles anciently continues to do so today. He is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. If humanity is not receiving revelation from God, it isn't because God has changed his mode of operation. Alone among contemporary denominations, the LDS Church, with its belief in modern revelation to apostles and prophets, is consistent with the Old and New Testaments in this respect. Now, this commentary elides quite nicely into verse 12, which says, "...thereby showing that he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Amen." So there's the second amen as we move through section 20. Verse 13, "...therefore having so great witnesses, by them shall the world be judged, even as many as shall hereafter come to a knowledge of this work." And who are these witnesses? Well, they're Joseph Smith. They're the three and the eight witnesses and the Bible itself, and the testimony of the Book of Mormon itself. And I think we can add to that that we too, as readers of the Book of Mormon, are witnesses in a very real sense. I think that we add to a great chorus of witnesses uh, of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Verse 14, And those who receive it in faith and work righteousness shall receive a crown of eternal life. Robinson and Garrett have said that uh, with respect to receive it in faith and work righteousness, note the importance of both faith and works to those who accept the gospel, faith to enter and begin, and work to remain and grow in the covenant. This phrase, crown of eternal life, is not to be missed, Uh, and this relates, I think, to uh, what we read in section 14, verse 7, about eternal life being the greatest of the gifts of God. This really, as Robertson and Garrett point out, implies exaltation in the celestial kingdom. Servants do not wear crowns, only rulers do. So much is implied by the use of the word crown there. And by uh, phrasing it this way, the Lord creates a linkage between this concept and the concept of exaltation and reconciliation and entering into the rest of the Lord. Verse 15, But those who harden their hearts in unbelief and reject it it shall turn to their own condemnation. Remember, we've read recently about the weakness in Joseph Smith's uh, character and his weakness in writing. Uh, Moroni talked about his weakness in writing. Uh, Even though the Book of Mormon is so beautiful and pristine, it can be perceived as foolishness to others. Uh, Mark Twain went on record as, as calling the Book of Mormon foolish as did so many others, and as do so many others today. Uh, It is those who are proving themselves to not be meek. It is the meek who see the beauty and the splendor of this book that are able then to read it without hardening their hearts. But those who are not sufficiently meek, it will turn to their own condemnation. So I'm kind of drawing connections between what is taught in Ether chapter 12 and uh, what is being said here. Verse 16, for the Lord God has spoken it, and we, the elders of the church, have heard and bear witness to the words of the glorious majesty on high, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there's the third amen in section 20. The elders of the church, well, this is, of course, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, who are the first and second elders. Let's read uh, now that we've come to verse 16 and kind of completed this first section or this first topical division within this section. Uh, Let's read this from the Doctrine and Covenant student manual. Doctrine and Covenant section 20 reviews some of the significant events of the Restoration. For example, Joseph Smith was visited by God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ and received a remission of his sins during the first vision. So that was alluded to in verse 5. The holy angel Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith and instructed him and gave unto him commandments which inspired him, which we read in verses 6 and 7. Joseph Smith later obtained the Golden Plates and was given power and means to translate the Book of Mormon. We read of that in verse 8. Others, such as the three witnesses, received confirmation of the Book of Mormon's divine origin. We read of that in verse 10. And the restoration of priesthood authority is evident in the ordination of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery as the first and second elders of the church, which we read in verses 2-3. through This revelation also testifies that the Book of Mormon establishes the truthfulness of the Bible see Doctrine and Covenants section 20 verse 11 and also uh, 1st Nephi chapter 13 verse 40 and Mormon discusses this as well it's actually Moroni and Mormon chapter 7 verses 8 through 9. Furthermore this revelation emphasizes the vital role of the book of Mormon by promising eternal life to those who receive it in faith and condemning those who harden their hearts in unbelief and reject it. So As is the case with many other scriptural passages, we can see that the divisive nature of the word of the Lord is on display. It's a two-edged sword. And uh, when it is received in meekness and in faith, it can take the reader to eternal life. When it is received with derision and scorn and mockery, it can lead those readers to their condemnation. The parable of the sower might come to mind here as well. Uh, when the word does fall upon our ground, we can see just how critical it is here that we are good ground when we are met with the word. We can also see that in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse and the Joseph Smith rendering of Matthew chapter 24, which is called Joseph Smith Matthew in the Pearl of Great Price, we, we can see that the key to the very elect not being deceived is that they treasureth up the word. Well, now as we come to verse 17, this is kind of a new section within this section, or a new topical division. And so it's in this portion that we'll read about the doctrines of the creation and the fall and the atonement. We'll also read more about baptism. So verse 17, By these things we know that there is a God in heaven, who is infinite and eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, the same unchangeable God, the framer of heaven and earth, and all things which are in them. So here we're clearly still talking about the Book of Mormon as we move into these uh, transcendent and resplendent doctrines, by these things, in other words, the Book of Mormon. Then the word infinite is used in verse 17, that God is infinite, uh, infinite and eternal, and that he's unchangeable. Robinson and Garrett have written, because Latter-day Saints believe in a God with a physical body, uh, which as is clarified in Doctrine and Covenants section 130, verse 22, we are often accused of believing in a finite God. But this statement in the Articles and Covenants of the Church is unequivocal. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In fact, it is the God of traditional Christianity who no longer reveals His will to apostles or prophets, who seems rather to have changed from the biblical pattern. So we can see that with this founding document of the church, these Articles and Covenants, that these very fundamental doctrines are being laid out. So the first thing that's being established here is the infinite and eternal nature of God. Uh, we, we can think about the order in which uh, missionaries teach the gospel to investigators, and we can certainly see a relationship uh, be, between that order and what we're seeing here. So that continues into verse 18. This next critical doctrine of the creation comes. And that he created man, male and female, after his own image and in his own likeness created he them. Well, it seems audacious enough to other Christian sects that we would refer to an infinite and eternal God that is also embodied. Uh, But this audacity, if I, I may put it that way, reaches new heights as we come to verse 18 and really think deeply about what is meant by man, meaning man, male and female, after the image and likeness of God. Uh, This implies something about the nature of God. Uh, It also implies something about the scriptural use of the word man, that male and female is implied inside of that designation. So we can see from this that if man, male and female, is created after the image of God, that even though the pronoun he is used with reference to God, there is clearly something more that is being said here. And so when we consider ancient scriptural language and the nature of God, and we consider the nature of exalted man as we understand it to be a a union between man and woman that becomes exalted as a composite unit, we gain great and precious and sacred insight into the nature of God. Robinson and Garrett have written, Note that Eve as much as Adam is created in the image of God. Therefore, the use of God has a slightly different significance in connection with the creation than it does in most other contexts, or in other words, the use of the word God. The First Presidency in 1925 declared, All men and women are in the similitude of the universal father and mother and are literally sons and daughters of deity. This may be one of several reasons for the plural noun form Elohim in the Hebrew word for God. So lest we miss that final point, there is a plural noun form for Elohim. That should be deeply significant to us, I think, when we think of the nature of God. We can think about the statement, neither is man in the Lord without the woman, and neither is the woman in the man without the Lord. Verse 19, And gave unto them commandments, that they should love and serve him, the only living and true God, and that he should be the only being whom they should worship. So now we're moving into this, basically into this story of Adam and Eve, and the task that they have to call upon God and to love and serve him. We read about that in Moses chapter 5. This phrase, the only living and true God, Robinson and Garrett have written, If death is the separation of spirit and body... Then a truly living God is a God, like the Father, or like Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected. In this vein, some early Christian literature reserves the phrase, the living Jesus, for the resurrected Christ. Verse 20. But by the transgression of these holy laws, man became sensual and devilish, and became fallen man. So, now as we progress through these doctrines, it's critical that we learn about the fall. It should be noted, says Robinson and Garrett, that man became devilish by transgression, and that we possessed a different nature prior to that transgression that was not carnal, sensual, and devilish. Our fallen self, with its carnal nature, is a temporary, sin-caused aberration. The atonement of Christ restores us to our true and original nature. This is, I think, a most important point that can hardly be overemphasized, that we do have a true and original nature that comes before the nature that King Benjamin spoke of, this fallen nature, where the natural or the, where the man becomes natural. And again, think of the scriptural use of the man here. Men and women become natural by virtue of this fall, and uh, they are then pitted against God in a way. However, this, as uh, Robinson and Garrett so beautifully say here, is a temporary sin-caused aberration. Terrell and Fiona Givens have recently uh, made quite a point of this in their writings as they have spoken of the healing nature of the Savior and uh, how we should be uh, careful with conjuring an image of a somewhat vindictive or justice-obsessed God who um, almost begrudgingly accepts us back into his own because of the mediation and atonement of Jesus Christ They explain instead that God, and think again of the uh, composite nature of God, is uh, loving and parental and is drawn out towards us with feelings of love and great familial feeling and that God very much wants us to succeed and knows that this temporary sin-caused aberration is something that the atonement of Jesus Christ will account for and that we can be restored to our true and original nature and thus we can be healed. So there's a very interesting relationship between uh, sin and also sickness and disease and, and being healed. Verse 21, Wherefore the Almighty God gave his only begotten Son, as it is written in those scriptures which have been given of him. He suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. Of this, Robertson and Garrett have written, Jesus suffered all the temptations associated with mortality. Every temptation we encounter, he encountered. The great difference between us is that when he suffered temptations, Jesus gave no heed. That is, he paid no attention to them. Uh, That's elucidated upon in the book of Hebrews and also in a few points in the book of Mormon. He was perfectly righteous because of his moral strength in overcoming temptation, not because he never experienced genuine temptation. So Robinson and Garrett are saying that he did. So the problem was set up uh, this problem of the fall, of this temporary sin caused aberration, this state that we're in. And uh, we've moved very deftly, or this section moves very deftly into the solution his only begotten Son. Verse 23 He was crucified, died, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven to sit down on the right hand of the Father, to reign with almighty power to the will of the Father. Now, we read about crowns earlier. Here is another uh, kind of royal word, the word reign. And we can see that to sit down on the right hand of the Father does have a relationship with the word reconcile, which means to sit with again. So that's something to think deeply about. It's really part of the gospel message. It's part of the doctrine of Christ. It has to do with the tree of life, really. It has to do with our ultimate attainment to the presence of God in the celestial city, as it's described in the book of Revelation. Exaltation is to sit down on the right hand of the Father. Now, why the right hand as opposed to the left hand? Uh, Susan Black has written, Throughout Holy Writ, God uses his right hand to designate a privileged status for the righteous. For example, Jesus Christ is on the right hand of the Father. Those whose names are recorded in the book of life are promised a favored position on the right hand of God. The Lord further promises that through trials, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness, he says in Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10. For those who merit his left hand, no such promises are given, for they chose to transgress the laws of God and ignore his command to righteousness. So this is important imagery, and it's also reflected, of course, in the way that we perform ordinances today, the role of the right hand. We are physically symmetrical. And it's absolutely okay if a person is left-handed versus right-handed. But spiritually speaking, there is uh, significance in this imagery of right-hand versus left-hand. Verse 25, that as many as would believe and be baptized in his holy name and endure in faith to the end should be saved. Now, Robinson and Garrett say, All who enter the gospel covenant through faith, repentance, baptism, and receiving the Holy Ghost, and who then remain committed and faithful, are assured of salvation in the celestial kingdom of God. So here we are speaking of the doctrine of Christ. The problem was set up before the answer came. And the problem, of course, is the problem of the fall. And before the fall was described to us here, the the other pillar of eternity, the creation, was described prior to that. Uh, So now here we are, being presented with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is a way for us, if we will but be baptized and endure in faith to the end, that uh, we can be saved. And when we use the word saved here, we're talking about receiving a a crown, this aforementioned crown, this idea of sitting down uh, with the Lord again and being truly reconciled, being joint heirs with the chief heir. And, of course, in the language of the oath and covenant of the priesthood, uh, being given all that the Father hath, which is something that is extended to all, male and female, in their exalted composite state. Verse 26, Not only those who believed after he came in the meridian of time in the flesh, but all those from the beginning, even as many as were before he came, who believed in the words of the holy prophets, who spake as they were inspired by the gift of the Holy Ghost, who truly testified of Him in all things, should have eternal life. So here we might think of the kind of the limiting uh, influence of 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 being one of those who comes to the earth and has the advantage of hearing from a living prophet. Uh, we spoke a few moments ago about the fullness of the gospel in its uh, more contemporary sense, and the way in which that includes the ordinances for the dead. Um, notice that the scope is being clarified here of access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a church of the firstborn speaking of the book of revelation. There is a mechanism through which one must access the atoning grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it it is through covenanting with him and it is through his priesthood power that that must be done. But ultimately this will be extended to all people. Here we can see that uh, the limitations of time are being transcended by this gospel program and by the atoning power of Jesus Christ, that it won't just come to those who believed after he came in the meridian of time in the flesh, but actually all those from the beginning. What, by the way, is the meaning of the term meridian of time? Well, Robinson and Garrett say not necessarily the chronological middle of the earth's temporal existence, but rather the spiritual middle. It is the point that everything before looks ahead to, and that everything after looks back at, the high point in the earth's temporal existence. Just as everything before noon is anti-meridian, or AM, and everything after noon is post-meridian, or PM, so the atonement of Christ is the reference point in time, like noon, that determines the before and after of all things. So we can see that the atonement of Jesus Christ is infinite and eternal because he is infinite and eternal, and because his atoning act extends to all those uh, who came before the meridian of time. Now, verse 27 will say, as well as those who should come after, who should believe in the gifts and callings of God by the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of the Father and the Son. So, yes, we are fallen, but we have not been left alone. We can avail ourselves of the atoning grace and the saving power moment to moment and ultimately of Jesus Christ. But we can also see uh, that that good news continues because a member of the Godhead can be with us as a constant companion in the form of the Holy Ghost. Robinson and Garrett have written, The atonement of Christ was infinite in its scope and nature and blessed not just those who lived after his ascension, But all who have accepted or will accept the gospel from Adam's time on down to the end of the earth's millennial existence. Verse 28, which Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God, infinite and eternal without end. Amen. So there's, if I'm counting correctly, the fifth Amen of this section. Let's look at some commentary by Robinson and Garrett for just a moment on this phrase, one God. The term God is used here and in many other scriptures in the sense of Godhead, meaning the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost together. In this sense, how many gods are there? Only one. It is true we believe there is more than one divine being, but they are united. If the Son and the Holy Ghost were not obedient to the Father, or if they deviated from being one with him in mind, thought, and purpose, they would cease to be divine. Even those mortals who are to be exalted and become as gods will do so only in a subordinate sense to the degree that they become obedient to and one with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Thus, Latter-day Saints believe in one God or one Godhead consisting of three divine beings, two of whom depend on their perfect oneness with the Father for their divine status. So it seems here, really, that the unity is the point. I, I had a friend recently who said, "So are you polytheistic or monotheistic?" This really was just kind of a classification question, and I I never quite thought of the question that way, uh, because um, if you get outside of Christianity, that's kind of a compelling or interesting question about another religion, but. In our case as members of the church, I guess technically the answer to his question was, yes, we're polytheistic because we believe in more than one God. But the truth is that um, there's so much unity in the Godhead that we behave as though we are a monotheistic religion. I I think that is accurate to say. And uh, his implication uh, about us being polytheistic, whether he knew it or not, would be that there is some... uh, disunity or difference in purpose between the gods that are potentially worshipped in a given religion. So that's simply a worldly classification. The important point here is that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God that they are drawn out to us and that we have access to them. We can pray to the Father in prayer all the day long through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ a Father that is drawn out to us in love And we can access the atoning grace of the Savior not only in the ultimate salvific sense, but in the immediate, the proximate sense. And of course, we have the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. This is a member of the Godhead, and uh, we often, I think, hierarchically think about the wonder of being visited by an angel, but think of the wonder for just a moment of having the constant companionship of a member of the Godhead, or of the Godhead that's what the gift of the Holy Ghost is. Well, now we move into a new topical division in section 20. Uh, We will read now about the laws governing repentance, justification, sanctification, and then baptism is discussed again. Really, this is just a continuation of what we've been doing. And think again of the way that investigators are taught by the missionaries and the, the order of things as it's laid out in Preach My Gospel. We're kind of following a similar order here. So now that we've talked about Our creation and the creation of the world, we've talked about the fall, we've talked about the means that has been prepared that allows us to access salvation, even in the midst of our fallen nature, and now uh, we will talk more specifically about repentance, justification and sanctification, the wonder of it all, that we can be in a fallen state and estranged from God, uh, and yet somehow we can be reconciled to Him. Verse 29 And we know that all men must repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ and worship the Father in his name and endure in faith on his name to the end, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. And we know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. So we're reading that justification is just and true in this verse, and then in verse 31 we'll read the same of sanctification. So let's gear down and read some commentary first on this concept of justification. Smith and Sojal have written, Justification is true. Through the grace of God and the promise made to us before the foundation of the world that we could be redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ and come back into his presence, We are justified in seeking this gift and have a claim upon this promise through obedience. We are justified through the grace of our Lord if we keep his commandments. We know that justification through Jesus Christ is just and true. Justification is a judicial act whereby God declares that the sinner who repents and by faith accepts the sacrifice of the Lamb of God and who is baptized according to the word of God is acquitted and received into his kingdom. So... When we think of justified, we can think of being justified in our fallen state, that there is a way forward in our fallen state to become justified. So it's from that perspective. Robinson and Garrett have written that justification is a judicial or legal term, and it means being acquitted or being declared innocent of all charges. Though all of us make mistakes in this life, we may with repentance and baptism, and thereafter as long as we stay in the gospel covenant— still be declared innocent of all sin not because of our own perfect performance which no one has but because of Christ's perfect performance and his willingness to share it with us we are justified or declared innocent before God by the sacrifice of Christ romans chapter 5 verse 9 discusses this and our acquittal or victory at the bar of justice is received only through reliance upon the merits of christ And then there are many verses that are referenced with that statement. It would be an error to define the specific agents of justification or sanctification too narrowly. The scriptures describe us variously as being justified by Christ, by faith, by grace, by works, by Christ's blood, and by the Spirit. Likewise, scripture describes us variously as being sanctified by Christ, by the grace of God, by the truth, by the Word of God by God the Father, by law, by water, by the Holy Spirit, and by blood, and their scriptural references with each of those phrases. Thus, while it is clear that justification and sanctification are true and essential principles, we should not try to define too narrowly the means by which they are gained. Here, in Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, verse 30, the Lord himself affirms that the worthiness we seek in order to enter the kingdom— comes to us only through Christ and because of his his merits, mercy, and grace. This is both a just and a true principle. It is just because Christ satisfied the demands of justice that someone pay for our sins, and it is also true. Verse 31, And we know also that sanctification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true, to all those who love and serve God with all their mights, minds, and strength. So now that we've established the meaning of justification, let's discuss sanctification. Smith and Soljal have written that sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit by which he who is justified is enabled to keep the commandments of God and grow in holiness. So remember we've read of the justification that comes to us as fallen mortals because of the perfect performance of the Savior and because of his atoning act. Now we're talking about the influence of the Holy Ghost upon us, making us sanctified Robinson and Garrett write, To be made holy, to become saints, is sanctification. When we have been rendered innocent by being justified through the grace of Christ by baptism, we are then worthy to receive the actual companionship of God in the person of the Holy Ghost. Receiving the Holy Ghost does not just make us clean, it also makes us holy, that is, sanctified. For this reason, all who have received the gift of the Holy Ghost are referred to collectively as the saints, meaning the Holy Ones. Through faith in Christ, repentance, baptism, and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, we are first rendered innocent, or justified, and then we are made holy, sanctified, and may be called saints, the Holy Ones. Because we have received this blessing in the latter days, we are called Latter-day Saints, a collective term for those in our dispensation who have been justified and sanctified by the grace of Christ and who now work to endure faithfully to the end. Now, to this process of sanctification, there must be added a qualifier, however, and that qualifier is found in verse 31. Uh, It is those who love and serve God with all their mights, mind, and strength and robertson and garrett say that sanctification does not come to everyone who is confirmed simply as an automatic result of the ordinance being performed only those who truly love and serve the lord who have received the ordinance with sincere intent will actually be sanctified by the spirit and truly become saints but as verse 32 goes on uh, expanding upon this point There is a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. Therefore, let the church take heed and pray always, lest they fall into temptation. So this is clearly a message that comes from Lehi's great vision. In 1 Nephi chapter 8, we can consider that for a moment, and the four ways in which those who sought after the tree, uh, or at least the four pathways that people seem to have followed. There was one route that one group followed when they did attain unto the tree of life but instead of falling to their knees in an attitude of praise and worship they became susceptible to the scorn and the mocking of those who were in the large and spacious building and they fell away from grace and departed from the living god so that is still possible and it is that reality or the reality of a testimony being a perishable commodity as president nelson once put it uh, that keeps us on watch Robertson and Garrett have written, As wonderful as the gifts of being justified and sanctified are, we may fall from grace after receiving them, if we depart from the living God. For once justified and sanctified by the gift of God, we are then obligated to serve Him with all our mights, minds, and strength. Getting into the covenant by grace is easy, but staying in it takes commitment, willingness, and effort. We enter the covenant by faith in Christ and by His grace, but we endure to the end by continuing to serve and obey Him. If we refuse to serve God, withhold our loyalty, or renege on our covenants, we can fall from the grace by which we were justified and sanctified when we first came to Christ. Christians who follow the teachings of John Calvin deny the possibility of falling from grace, insisting instead on the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved, this is a major difference between Latter-day Saints and Calvinist Christians. We, as members of the Church, sometimes get confused and insist that coming into the covenant requires works, which, if we perform well, God will then reward with grace. But this is backwards. Entering the covenant requires faith and grace. Staying in it, enduring to the end, and not falling from the grace already received, requires work as well. I would just add that uh, it's almost a moot point when we realize that Work is always implied whenever belief and faith are mentioned in Scripture. I was recently reading uh, Ether chapter 12, uh, reading verse 4, Ether's statement about belief, and noticed that in the previous verse, uh, Ether uses the phrase, belief unto repentance. It says that he exhorted the people to believe in God unto repentance. The work of repentance is implied as a companion to true belief. So in that sense, I think those works are always there. Daniel Ludlow has uh, offered this in his uh, study of the Doctrine and Covenants, companion to your study of the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, this is from an Ensign article by Theodore M. Burton in uh, 1974. He said, As I understand this scripture, it means that Jesus Christ is kind and merciful to us when we serve him with our whole hearts, but not any of us can take refuge in past righteousness or service. It also means that there is a possibility that any one of us can fall out of good standing even those who have already achieved a certain degree of righteousness. Therefore, we need to be on our constant guard, each of us, that we not allow ourselves to fall into habits of carelessness in our faith, in our prayers, or in our various church activities or responsibilities. It is for this reason that I am resolving again to live closer to God each day and to follow his chosen prophets and apostles more diligently than I have ever done in the past, says Elder Burton. Then Ludlow offers this from Francis M. Lyman, This is a short section from a conference report that he gave in October of 1897. He said, I am brought to believe that it is possible for men to repent and then to unrepent and to fail to keep the repentance good. And I believe that the victory is in the retaining our repentance and making it good so that the Spirit of the Lord may dwell richly with us. A beautiful statement there by Elder Lyman. I alluded to a statement a moment ago by President Nelson, I have in other episodes as well, but I heard him say that, uh, that a testimony is a perishable commodity uh, in a zone conference when I was on my mission in Australia. Uh, We had a a, a mission-wide meeting, I think I may have just said zone conference, but it was a mission-wide conference, and only missionaries were allowed in the meeting. And uh, after speaking to us, uh, President Nelson, then of course Elder Nelson, uh, invited our questions, and there was a missionary among us who spoke of a of his um, of his frustration with uh, seeing a member who had fallen away from the church, and uh, spoke of his efforts to to bring that member back to a realization of the of the goodness of God and of what's available to him in the church, and to bring him back into activity. And uh, to that, Elder Nelson said, "Never forget, elders and sisters, that a testimony is a perishable commodity." Then verse 34 says, Yea, and even let those who are sanctified take heed also. So as we wonder when this can happen, uh, uh, is, is the Lord saying here that you can fall away or fall from grace between the time that you're justified and sanctified? No, it can happen after you've been sanctified as well. Robertson and Garrett say, Even those who are sanctified, exactly who among the total membership of the church have actually been sanctified is clarified in verse 31. Not every member loves and serves the Lord, but even those who do, the truly sanctified, must pray always lest they fall into temptation. Some people believe that in this verse, sanctification refers to those who have been sealed up to eternal life, or who have received the second comforter. Uh, But this revelation was received too early in the history of the church, in April of 1830, for that phenomenon to be found among the saints, or to be widely known." So Robinson and Garrett are are good to bring this up at this point and to, to help us to see that this concept of having one's calling and election made sure is not tantamount to sanctification as it's being presented here. Verse 35, and we know that these things are true and according to the revelations of John, neither adding to nor diminishing from the prophecy of his book, the Holy Scriptures, or the revelations of God, which shall come hereafter by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, the voice of God or the ministering of angels. Well, of course, this phrase, uh, adding to or uh, neither diminishing from the prophecy of the book of John is really curious. And it's um, kind of a self-acknowledgement here that uh, the open canon that uh, is found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not run counter to John's stated instructions or intentions in his book, Of course, we know that the book of Revelation is out of chronological order. It's not the last thing that John wrote anyway, but it's still worth looking at here for a moment. It's interesting that the Lord would acknowledge John's statement here in verse 35. Daniel Ludlow has said that because this statement by John appears in the last book of the Bible, uh, it has been misinterpreted by some to mean there could not be any other scripture than the Bible itself. However, the Bible had not been canonized in its present form at the time John wrote the book of Revelation, thus he must have been referring to his own book only, or perhaps he was cautioning people not to add to, including false teachings with, in other words, or to rest the scriptures, uh, not to add to the holy scriptures in that sense. So clearly that's what John did mean. And earlier in the book of Revelation, uh, he, he refers to how complete the scrolls are. Uh, So it's in that sense that the word of the Lord should not be uh, uh, mingled with the philosophies of man or with the teachings of man, but it needs to retain its purity in that sense. Robinson and Garrett have written that the revelations received through the prophet Joseph Smith and other Latter-day prophets reflect all of the truth that have been revealed by God since the time of Adam, neither adding to it nor diminishing from it. In nothing does the restored gospel contradict, add to, or diminish from the fullness of the gospel again, in the narrow and scriptural sense explained above in verse 9, as revealed to other prophets, including John, the last prophet of the former dispensation. Verse 36, And the Lord God has spoken it, and honor, power, and glory be rendered to his holy name, both now and ever. Amen. I think the sixth amen. So these amens create very interesting sectional divisions here as we move along in this document. Now, by these things we know is an interesting phrase, Uh, and of course that's the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants student manual says the following. In Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verse 17, so we're hearkening back to verse uh, 17, the phrase, by these things, refers to the truths we know through the Book of Mormon. Through the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the fullness of the gospel, Latter-day Saints have been given a clearer understanding of the doctrines related to our personal salvation, especially the central role of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. President Ezra Taft Benson taught, in the 20th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord devotes several verses to summarizing the vital truths which the Book of Mormon teaches. That's a very interesting way of putting it. I've likened the order of what's being taught here to the missionary discussions, but President Benson very explicitly says that the Lord, quote, devotes several verses to summarizing the vital truths which the Book of Mormon teaches. Then he goes on by saying it speaks of God, the creation of man, the fall, the atonement, the ascension of Christ into heaven, prophets, faith, repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost, endurance, prayer, justification and sanctification through grace, and loving and serving God. We must know these essential truths. Aaron and Ammon and their brethren in the Book of Mormon taught these same kinds of truths to the Lamanite people who were in the darkest abyss, After accepting these eternal truths, the Book of Mormon states, those converted Lamanites never did fall away. If our children and grandchildren are taught and heed these same truths, will they fall away? We best instruct them in the Book of Mormon at our dinner table, by our firesides, at their bedsides, and in our letters and phone calls, in all of our goings and comings, says President Benson. Now the manual concludes by saying the phrase we know is used several times in Doctrine and Covenant, section 20 verses 17 through 36. It reflects a spirit of testimony and reminds church members that these fundamental doctrines shape our beliefs. So when we consider the, the meaning of the fullness of my gospel, we've talked about that plenty, but when we consider the question more broadly, what truths should we be pulling from our reading and study of the Book of Mormon, well, President Benson has summarized it very beautifully in that quote, and we can see that they are being presented to us in a very deliberate way here in section 20. So that brings us to section 37, which is a, a critical uh, baptismal interview kind of a uh, verse. We're going to read lots of commentary associated with verse 37, all of it having to do with baptism. So it reads as follows And again, by way of commandment to the church concerning the manner of baptism, All those who humble themselves before God, and desire to be baptized, and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits, and witness before the Church that they have truly repented of all their sins, and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve Him to the end, and truly manifest by their works that they have received the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins, shall be received by baptism into His Church. Joseph Fielding Smith has written, in Church History and Modern Revelation, In this revelation, in section 20, the church about to be restored is taught in the fundamental principles so that when that restoration comes, all things for its welfare will be in readiness. For hundreds of years, man had been teaching false doctrines and none more glaring than that in relation to the principle of baptism. Here the Lord makes it very plain and gives instructions who shall be admitted into the church. The question is frequently raised whether or not those who have not repented of all their sins should be admitted into the church, in the hope that they may finish their repentance when they are full-fledged members of the church. The Lord has been very explicit in this revelation on this point, and if it is followed, there will be no mistake. Smith and Sojol have written, There are three requirements of an applicant for baptism. One, he must be humble, so that he asks for it as a favor. He who comes with broken heart and contrite spirit is in the proper frame of mind for that ordinance. 2. He must show before the church that he is repentant and willing to take upon him the name of Jesus Christ. This confession is made before the church when it is made in the presence of an elder or elders representing the church. 3. He must manifest by his works that he has received the Spirit. An infant cannot comply with these conditions. Robinson and Garrett have written with respect to the manner of baptism. The Lord commands the church to administer baptism 1. When candidates are humble before God, no bargaining and nothing held back, but willing to do whatever God requires. 2. When candidates really want to be baptized. 3. When they have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. 4. When they can testify to the church that they have repented, that is, that they have begun the repentance process. 5. When they are willing to take upon themselves the name of christ and six when they have a determination to serve christ for the rest of their lives and bear the fruits of membership in his church a broken heart says robinson garrett suggests an overwhelming sense of grief and loss in this case not for a lost sweetheart but for lost worthiness and a lost relationship with god in our fallen state we have lost these things But when we enter the gospel covenant, we can receive them again, and our broken hearts will be healed. Contrition is the desire to repent and make things right. A contrite heart yearns to do whatever it may take to get right with God and to make amends for sin. Here are some other beautiful statements on the meaning of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. The Doctrine and Covenant student manual says, "...to receive a remission of our sins requires that we come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits." President Ezra Taft Benson taught what it means to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Quote, "...godly sorrow is a gift of the Spirit. It is a deep realization that our actions have offended our Father and our God. It is the sharp and keen awareness that our behavior caused the Savior, He who knew no sin, even the greatest of all, to endure agony and suffering, Our sins caused him to bleed at every pore. This very real mental and spiritual anguish is what the scriptures refer to as having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Joseph Fielding Smith wrote, and actually said, in an October 1941 conference report, Mark you, the Lord says, before a man comes into the church, he must have a desire. He must come with a broken heart and contrite spirit. What is a broken heart? one that is humble, one that is touched by the Spirit of the Lord, and which is willing to abide in all the covenants and the obligations which the gospel entails. Every baptized person who has fully repented, who comes into the church with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, has made a covenant to continue with that broken heart, with that contrite spirit, which means a repentant spirit. What we often uh, think of brokenheartedness, I think, is the full meaning of, Uh, Of broken heart, and that's kind of how it's described here. But Joseph Fielding Smith is saying something a little bit more, I think, because not only is one broken hearted because of his discovery, this sharp and keen awareness that President Benson discussed—that he's caused the Savior, who knew no sin, to endure agony and suffering. Uh, He's also saying something else: that that person with that broken heart is willing to abide in all the covenants and the obligations which the gospel entails. So. It's an it's it's not a sadness um, only. I think I think it may also be a willingness to be led. In this sense, we might think of the meaning of the word "broken" or "break" with reference to horses. Uh, when a horse is broken, that horse becomes willing to be led. Uh, that is a broken horse. Uh, in that light, it is viewed as something entirely positive, and uh, a bit and a bridle can be placed upon that horse. And it can be led, it can be useful to its owner in that sense. I think we become useful to God when we have broken hearts in that sense. Uh, We're broken in the sense that we allow him to take the reins. We allow him to lead us. In that sense, and with that imagery, I think there's a relationship between being broken and being brokenhearted and taking the yoke uh, or taking his yoke upon us, as he said in Matthew chapter 11. The phrase, take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, of course, is also something that we encounter in the sacramental prayers. In the, in the prayer on the bread, it's one of three commitments we make uh, to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. Robinson and Garrett speak of this, saying that the name of Christ is symbolic for Christ himself and for his power. It is the name of Jesus Christ that makes everything we do work. Repentance, prayers, ordinances, justification, sanctification, the church, and so on. We have faith in the power of His name, repent in His name, and are baptized in His name, receive the Holy Ghost in His name, and have access to the Father only in His name. We can use Jesus' name properly, however only if we are His. So, to take His name upon us is to accept the power of His name in our own behalf, and also to accept the obligation to represent His name to others and to the world. We accept His ownership, His name is written upon us. And we accept that we represent his name as we serve him. Finally, bearing his name means assuming his identity and therefore gradually becoming what he is. I think a lot of that is implied in the imagery in the book of Revelation. When uh, it seems that there's writing on the foreheads of those who become the elect of God and members of the church of the firstborn. I think uh, that can suggest to us when we think of Alma's language about having his image in our countenances that somehow we are readable Our countenances are readable by God, and if we have taken His name upon us, and if His name is written upon us, it is plainly evident to those who can spiritually see. Robinson and Garrett then offer commentary on the phrase, the Spirit of Christ. Usually the phrase, Spirit of Christ, refers to the Holy Ghost, just as in the sacrament prayers, the priest petitions that they may always have His Spirit to be with them, referring specifically to the Holy Ghost. Here in verse 37, however, it appears that the Spirit of Christ refers to the light or influence of Christ that works on individuals before they enter the covenant and which, when followed, increases in intensity until it brings them to the gospel. And finally, Daniel Ludlow offers this commentary on the phrase in verse 37, truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins. He says Oliver Cowdery felt that the above statement was wrong, and so notified the prophet. Joseph Smith relates how Oliver was led to see the error of his thinking. and This can be found in History of the Church. Whilst thus employed in the work appointed me by my Heavenly Father, I received a letter from Oliver Cowdery, the contents of which gave me both sorrow and uneasiness. Not having that letter now in my possession, I cannot, of course, give it here in full, but merely an extract of the most prominent parts which I can yet, and expect long to, remember. Joseph, of course, had a prodigious memory. He wrote to inform me that he had discovered an error in one of the commandments, Book of Doctrine and Covenants, and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto a remission of their sins. The above question, he said, was erroneous and added, I command you in the name of God to erase those words that no priestcraft be among us. I immediately wrote to him in reply, and, and by the way we can see that Oliver has deep conviction about this issue and that works uh, the the role of work should not obfuscate the grace of the savior that seems to be uh, why Oliver said this to Joseph on this occasion and and he would have been plugged into that line of thinking from his previous religious experience and probably felt since he was more educated that uh, from time to time he needed to bring this perspective to Joseph in the uh, well into the creation of the canon of the church But here's what Joseph did. He says, I immediately wrote to Oliver in reply, in which I asked him by what authority he took upon him to command me to alter or erase, or to add or diminish from, a revelation or commandment from Almighty God. A few days afterwards, I visited him and Mr. Whitmer's family, when I found the family in general of his opinion concerning the words above quoted, and it was not without both labor and perseverance that I could prevail with any of them to reason calmly on the subject. However, Christian Whitmer at length became convinced that the sentence was reasonable and according to scripture, and finally with his assistance I succeeded in bringing not only the Whitmer family but also Oliver Cowdery to acknowledge that they had been in error and that the sentence in dispute was in accordance with the rest of the commandment, and thus was this error rooted out. That I think is an absolutely fascinating and enlightening account and shows that there was a tendency uh, of early members of the church to carry their the concepts of, of grace and works uh, that they had inherited from their, their their previous Christian affiliations into the doctrines and teachings of the church. And we can see that that did not prevail but instead Joseph was a willing instrument in the Lord's hands and that the correct words did come through him and make their way into our canon, so that we can have the right concept and understanding of this relationship between works and grace. Which, again, I think strangely is almost a moot point when we come to a deeper understanding of it, because works is always implied in the exercise of faith, as James really taught so plainly. It's a natural precursor to faith and a natural extension of faith, Well, now we move into this section, or this um, division, we could say, of section 20, uh, where we talk about priesthood duties, so the duties of elders and priests and teachers are are, um, expanded upon and summarized, and, and of deacons as well. So let's begin with verse 38, the duty of the elders, priests, teachers, deacons, and members of the Church of Christ, an apostle is an elder, and it is his calling to baptize. Well, let's take a look at this more carefully for a few moments with the help of some commentary. First this from the Doctrine and Covenants student manual. In the early years of the restored church, the term apostle was often applied to elders involved in missionary work. See for example the Lord's reference to Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer in section 18 verse 9 and in verse 14. It is also helpful to note that at the time the revelation was recorded in Doctrine and Covenants section 20, the office of high priest in the Melchizedek Priesthood had not yet been revealed. The title elder is now used to describe any Melchizedek priesthood holder who is called to preach the gospel, regardless of his priesthood office. For example, male missionaries are addressed as elders. Also an apostle is an elder, and it is proper to speak of members of the Quorum of the Twelve or Quorums of the Seventy by this title of elder. Robinson and Garrett tell us something similar here by saying that the difference between an elder and an apostle is not a difference of priesthood. Both hold the Melchizedek priesthood, but an apostle holds with his quorum the keys of the kingdom and has an additional special calling to be a personal witness of Christ. High priests and seventies are also elders, that is, they hold the Melchizedek priesthood, but they are also are elders who at times hold specific keys and callings. Elder is the title given to all holders of the Melchizedek priesthood. Joseph Fielding Smith has written, in Church History and Modern Revelation, We learn at this time, the Lord revealed that the designation Elder is one applicable to the Apostles and likewise to all others who hold the Melchizedek Priesthood. The use of this designation makes it needless to use unnecessarily sacred terms as Apostle, Patriarch, High Priest, etc. It is proper in general usage to speak of the Apostles, the Seventies, and all others holding the Melchizedek Priesthood as Elders. Of course, the term president in speaking of the first presidency is the proper designation. So this is a really wonderful additional piece of insight into this entire concept. Uh, we're learning here that it's appropriate to refer to, for example, Jeffrey R. Holland, an apostle, not as Apostle Holland, but as Elder Holland. Elder is a designation which means that one uh, holds the Melchizedek priesthood, which Elder Holland certainly does. And we don't use the term Apostle Holland, as um, uh, Joseph Fielding Smith is making clear here. So this is a a most important point for us. It uh, calls to mind uh, a talk that was once given. It may have only been a write-up, but I think it was a talk by Elder McConkie uh, called Only an Elder. So coming back to the text here, again, verse 38 talks about the duty of the elders, priests, teachers, and deacons, and members. So uh, first of all, it is um, to, as verse 39 says, and to ordain other elders, priests, teachers, and deacons, and to administer bread and wine, the emblem of the flesh and blood of Christ. And of course, uh, that was done at this first meeting of the church and to confirm those who are baptized into the church by the laying on of hands for the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost according to the scriptures, and to teach, expound, exhort, baptize, and watch over the church, and to confirm the church by the laying on of the hands and the giving of the Holy Ghost, and to take the lead of all meetings. This is almost a way of looking at the ministry of the Savior himself. As we read these priesthood duties, we can consider what we are given in the scriptures about the way in which the Savior interacted with the people. He also administered the emblems of his sacrifice uh, to the Nephites. And of course, he did that in the upper room with his disciples as well. And we can see that his hands were used in healing others and that he expounded on the scriptures and that he teached and exhorted and he watched over the church. He did all of these things as well. And so these duties, these priesthood duties of these priesthood holders, and this does extend, we can see very clearly in verse 38, to all members of the church, male and female, these actions reflect the actions of the Savior himself during his ministry. So We can see that we are acting in his name and in his stead as we do these things. This term, take the lead, that we find in verse 44, to take the lead of all meetings. Uh, Robinson and Garrett have written, If an apostle is present, it is his meeting. He may ask an elder to conduct for him. He may not wish to speak or otherwise participate, but he still presides. And all things in that meeting are done with the permission and authority of the one who presides. And we know, of course, from our experience in attending sacrament meetings, that there is uh, always a distinction made between the one who is conducting and the one who is presiding in a meeting. Verse 45, the elders are to conduct the meetings as they are led by the Holy Ghost according to the commandments and revelations of God. So that refers to the elders. Verse 46, the priest's duty is to preach, teach, expound, exhort, and baptize, and administer the sacrament. And visit the house of each member, and exhort them to pray vocally and in secret, and to attend to all family duties. There again, still thinking about the ministry of the Savior, think of the resurrected Lord in Third Nephi chapter 19, and how he exhorted the people to pray. Verse 48, And he may also ordain other priests, teachers, and deacons. And he is to take the lead of meetings when there is no elder present. But when there is an elder present, he is only to preach, teach, expound, exhort, and baptize. And visit the house of each member, exhorting them to pray vocally and in secret, and attend to all family duties. In all these duties, the priest is to assist the elder if occasion requires. The teacher's duty is to watch over the church always, and to be with and strengthen them, and see that there is no iniquity in the church, neither hardness with each other, neither lying, backbiting, nor evil speaking. And see that the church meet together often, and also see that all the members do their duty. And we can also see from this that these teachers, and their name implies this, are helping people to keep their covenants by preventing them from speaking ill one another or from backbiting or evil speaking and to do their duty. Verse 56, and he is to take the lead of meetings in the absence of the elder or priest, so we can see the order of things here, elder, priest, teacher, and is to be assisted always in all his duties in the church by the deacons if occasion requires. But neither teachers nor deacons have authority to baptize, administer the sacrament, or lay on hands. So here's this document from long ago that was written, and we can see how that plays out in our church today, that it is priests only who have the authority to baptize and to administer the sacrament. Um, verse 59, they are, however, meaning teachers and deacons, to warn, expound, exhort, and teach, and invite all to come unto Christ. And we can see that that playing out today as well Uh, when when it's done over the pulpit or in the context of ministering visits that most certainly is done by our young teachers and deacons well let's pause for just a moment and read some commentary from two different sources on these priesthood duties first this from the doctrine and covenant student manual when the church was organized in eighteen thirty the lord outlined the responsibilities and duties of elders priests teachers and deacons since that time Additional details have been revealed regarding these priesthood offices. Nevertheless, the important instructions outlined in Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verses 38-59, through are principles that all priesthood holders should continue to study and follow. President Thomas S. Monson emphasized the need to know our duty and to carry it out in the service of others. He said the priesthood is not really so much a gift as it is a commission to serve, a privilege to lift, and an opportunity to bless the lives of others. So, uh, President Monson is 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 poetic always in his speech, but notice what he's saying here. It's not just a gift. It's something far more. It's a commission. The call of duty, says President Monson, can come quietly as we who hold the priesthood respond to the assignments we receive. President George Albert Smith, that modest yet effective leader, declared, it is your duty first of all to learn what the Lord wants and then by the power and strength of his holy priesthood to magnify your calling in the presence of your fellows, in such a way that the people will be glad to follow you. Robinson and Garrett have written with respect to this passage in verses thirty-eight through fifty-nine. The Lord could not reveal to the church in the beginning all the knowledge and organization which would be essential to the full and complete organization of the church. Had this been done, it would have been like an overwhelming flood that would have been that would have brought destruction. The truth had to come piecemeal, line upon line, precept upon precept, just like knowledge comes to all of us. However, all that was revealed in this section was expedient for the government of the church at the time of its organization. What the Lord revealed at this time is just as expedient and necessary today. We have had nothing, for instance, uh, given since that day to add to or improve on the instruction concerning the duties of teachers. Overall, the duties of the priesthood center on looking after the church and assisting the members in living the principles of the gospel. The key functions of the priesthood are serving and blessing. Priesthood should not necessarily be thought of as bestowing special rights, but rather as bestowing special responsibilities. I would just add to this that uh, within the church, the word priesthood is so often um, associated with its male membership and is sometimes associated with a body of males, uh, when the word priesthood is used. When it's not even used that specifically, but is instead uh, the, the power of the priesthood is, is referred to, it is still only thought of often, I think, as an ancillary privilege enjoyed by those who have a male in the home. Uh, a privilege of uh, naming and blessing children and of of providing blessings to the sick and providing father's blessings and blessings of of comfort. Those most certainly are priesthood functions uh, that uh, it, it would be impossible to diminish their significance or to downplay their significance. But I do believe and have come to believe in my study of the scriptures and in my own role in the church that the most fundamental meaning of the priesthood is that it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power that allows us to access the covenants of salvation. And it is the power that allows us to covenant uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ and to have a covenant relationship with him. It is a power that is equally available to male and females in this church. Uh, Both of us, uh, both genders have access to, to the priesthood in this sense, and in this most fundamental and important sense. We, uh, both genders, are beneficiaries of the priesthood in exactly the same way and to exactly the same degree. One gender has been called upon to be a bearer of the priesthood, but both are beneficiaries. I think in that way, childbirth can be thought of. Uh, The father is no less apparent than the mother, but the mother is the bearer of that child the priesthood is the opposite. But in both instances, male and female are the beneficiaries of both the priesthood and beneficiaries, of course, of parenthood. The highest blessings and ordinances of the priesthood are given to male and female together. Well, with those thoughts in mind, and that's that section kind of complete, let's move now into verse 60. Every elder, priest, teacher, or deacon is to be ordained according to the gifts and callings of God unto him. And he is to be ordained by the power of the Holy Ghost, which is in the one who ordains him. In other words, as Robertson and Garrett put it, uh, office in the priesthood cannot come by self-appointment. A man must be ordained in proper order by one who already holds the priesthood. The effective power in ordination is the power of the Holy Ghost. So the Holy Ghost is the effective mediating power, if I'm saying that correctly. But there is no self-appointment. Uh, and that's, a, of course, a very important distinction between us, uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, and other Christian religions who do believe in a form of self appointment. Uh, not in our church, and we most certainly trace our priesthood ordina- ordinations right back to Joseph Smith himself and to John the Baptist and to Peter, James, and John. Verse 61 The several elders comprising this Church of Christ are to meet in conference once in three months. Or from time to time as said conferences shall direct or appoint well we read earlier that that specific language uh, must have been added a little bit later in this section because it's different than the one that was read uh, in the Joseph Smith papers or was found uh, in, in that particular account Daniel Ludlow tells us that in the very early days of the church some of these conferences were priesthood conferences when the stakes were the major ecclesiastical units of the church under the general authorities These quarterly conferences were primarily stake conferences. Today, they might include ward, region, and even area conferences. So very interesting as we think about how that concept of conferences, or meeting once in three months, kind of translates to our modern day. We kind of do meet quarterly, Uh, so if we only think of general conference, that's a semi-annual affair. But we can think of stake conferences and ward conferences as well. Verse 62 and said conferences are to do whatever church business is necessary to be done at the time. Robinson and Garrett write that the commandment for elders to meet in conference once in three months is met today by a combination of general and state conference priesthood meetings. Note that attendance at these meetings in person or by telecast is a commandment of the Lord and an obligation of holding the priesthood. For 63, the elders are to receive their licenses from other elders by vote of the church to which they belong or from the conferences. Each priest, teacher, or deacon who is ordained by a priest may take a certificate from him at the time, which certificate, when presented to an elder, shall entitle him to a license which shall authorize him to per- perform the duties of his calling, or he may receive it from a conference. So we can see further that there's there's order to the use of of uh, one's priesthood authority and uh, that the use or the, the role of keys is being implied here, of course, as well. And that's a, a word that came earlier in our reading of the Doctrine and Covenants. Daniel Ludlow says the practice of issuing certificates of ordination to those receiving the various offices of the priesthood has continued to the present time. Robinson and Garrett have written in the early days of the church The method employed to certify the membership, priesthood, and good standing of individuals was to give them certificates of ordination and membership. A person carried this certificate with him from his old branch and presented it to the presiding elder of the new one. Then by sustaining vote of the new branch, the priesthood holder would be given a license to function in the new branch. Also membership lists were present at the various conferences for entrance in the general records of the church. These usually also included a list of those who had been removed from the church since the last conference. Today, we still issue certificates of membership and ordination, but the function of issuing licenses and maintaining membership records has been assumed by ward, stake, and general clerks using an automated record system. The importance of members keeping their church records complete and up-to-date is thus underscored by these verses. Verse 65 No person is to be ordained to any office in this church where there is a regularly organized branch of the same without the vote of that church. But the presiding elders, traveling bishops, high counselors, high priests, and elders, may have the privilege of ordaining where there is no branch of the church that a vote may be called. Every president of the high priesthood or presiding elder, bishop, high counselor, and high priest is to be ordained by the direction of a high council or general conference. Robinson and Garrett write, At the time Doctrine and Covenant Section 20 was received, in 1829-1830, there were no such offices in the Church as High Priest, Bishop, or High Counselor. As the structure of the Church continued to unfold, Section 20 was revised to include the newly revealed offices. Verses 65-67 through 67 were added to Section 20 at the Prophet's direction in 1835, in order to include and instruct those holding offices that were unknown in 1830. Verse 65 also reflects the need for common consent in the church. And we'll read more about common consent in section 26 of the Doctrine and Covenants. So we read of this uh, when we were reading the introductory matter uh, and, and the historical background of section 20 that uh, section 60, or verses 65 through 67 did reflect a change that was made in 1835. So there's the reason. Daniel Ludlow provides this quote in his Companion to your study of the Doctrine of Covenants from Alonzo A. Hinckley, this is a nineteen thirty five conference report. He says, It seems so fitting to me to think that the Lord has made provision that the young men or the priests shall sit at the feet of the bishop and be instructed with him as president, that he shall be taught and that he shall go into the house of the saints, that he shall preach, teach, exhort, and expound the scripture, that ninety six men, older, maturer, and receiving the Holy Melchizedek priesthood, the elders, shall stand next to the presidency of the stake and be a standing ministry of the stake. So beautiful, so perfect, so complete is the Lord's way. Well, now, as we move into verses sixty eight through seventy four, we will talk about the duties of members and the blessing of children and the mode of baptism. So, verse sixty eight the duty of the members after they are received by baptism. The elders or priests are to have a sufficient time to expound all things concerning the Church of Christ to their understanding, previous to their partaking of the sacrament and being confirmed by the laying on of the hands of the elders, so that all things may be done in order. The word order is uh, very important and meaningful, I think, whenever discussing the priesthood. Robinson and Garrett say In the early days of the Church, the Lord required that baptized members be taught the basics of the gospel and have an understanding before being confirmed and partaking of the sacrament. This obligation now rests with the elders, a major purpose for teaching the missionary discussions and home teachers and parents and is generally met before baptism. Baptized members then have a binding obligation to behave according to what they have been taught. I have a missionary son at the moment and he uh, was able to bring an investigator to the waters of baptism over the the past weekend, and so I'm thinking a lot about this process as we move through these beautiful verses. And now it causes me to think about this new member and his obligation to live according to the covenant that he has just made. Verse 69, and the members shall manifest before the church and also before the elders by a godly walk and conversation that they are worthy of it that there may be works and faith agreeable to the Holy Scriptures, walking in holiness before the Lord. The duty of members. Joseph Fielding Smith has written in a conference report, Now, when people come into this church, they should by all means subscribe to the regulations which the Lord himself has laid down by commandment. But does that mean after we are in the church, after we have confessed our sins and have forsaken them, that we can return to them after membership has been secured? That would not be consistent. For 70. Every member of the church of Christ having children is to bring them unto the elders before the church who are to lay their hands upon them in the name of Jesus Christ and bless them in his name. Robinson and Garrett have written, while fathers holding the Melchizedek priesthood can bless their children whenever need arises, they are also commanded in this verse to bless them publicly in church. This commandment is kept under the direction of a bishop or branch president by blessing infants and small children in ward or branch fast and testimony meetings. Besides obtaining the obvious blessing of the priesthood for their child, parents who keep this commandment manifest their faith in the sight of their brethren and sisters, in God's word and in his promises, as well as their thankfulness to him for increasing their posterity and for the safe delivery of his handmaiden. This child has also benefited from the united faith and responsive prayers of the assembled saints. Verse 71, no one can be received into the church of Christ unless he has arrived unto the years of accountability before God and is capable of repentance. Well, this introduces us to the issue of the years of accountability then. Robinson and Garrett have written this. In Doctrine and Covenants section 68 verses 25 through 27, the Lord defined the age of accountability as eight years of age. This age was prefigured in the Law of Moses by circumcision of male children at eight days of age. We can read of that in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 17, verse 11, and is perhaps also alluded to in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20-21. through 21, Children younger than eight do not normally understand the covenant of baptism, nor can they repent, because without knowledge and accountability they cannot sin. Of course, Mormon in Moroni chapter 8 was very clear on these teachings. Baptism is for remission of sins. Children have no sins. Jesus blessed them and said, Do what you have seen me do. Children are all made alive in Christ, and those of riper years through faith and repentance. In other words, those of riper years can also be made alive in Christ through faith and repentance. Verse 72 Baptism is to be administered in the following manner unto all those who repent. The person, who is called of God and has authority from Jesus Christ to baptize, shall go down into the water with the person who has presented himself or herself for baptism, and shall say, calling him or her by name, Having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Then shall he immerse him or her in the water, and come forth again out of the water. So there, of course, is very clear instruction on the manner and mode of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And if we were able to see this very first church meeting in Fayette uh, at the Whitmer home, we would see that uh, many baptisms took place on this occasion as well. Daniel Ludlow has written, The mode of baptism is here taught. This is in conformity with all that is recorded in the New Testament, and makes it clear that the teachings in the world called baptism by sprinkling or pouring water on the head is a false doctrine. We are taught that baptism is only by immersion, and that it cannot be performed except it be by one who has divine authority. The elder or the priest shall go down into the water with the candidate, and after repeating the prayer the Lord has given for that ordinance, shall immerse the candidate in water. Another point which should be remembered is that no one can be received into the church of Christ unless he has arrived unto the years of accountability before God and is capable of repentance. And there Ludlow says to see Moroni chapter 8. Robinson and Garrett have written, the Lord has revealed to the church that baptism is to be by complete immersion. And Again, in verse 74 it says, immerse him or her, following the ancient pattern. The consensus of biblical scholars is that Jewish and Christian baptism in the first century was also by immersion. In fact, the verb baptize in Greek is normally translated as to immerse or to dip. Well, now that we've discussed baptism, and now that section 20 has discussed baptism so thoroughly, and adds to the understanding of baptism that we gain in our reading of the Book of Mormon, Uh, we now very naturally move into the teachings regarding the sacrament. And in fact, we're given explicitly the sacramental prayers herein. So verse 75 says, It is expedient that the church meet together often to partake of bread and wine in the remembrance of the Lord Jesus. What perhaps we could also add to this is that the baptismal covenant, the terms of that covenant, are laid out here, really, in verse 37. Verse 37 of section 20. But when the prayer of baptism itself is given and one is immersed in the water, the the prayer that precedes that in that ordinance, that prayer does not rehearse the terms of the covenant of baptism. Uh, That's unique. Instead, the terms of the covenant of baptism seem to be rehearsed in the sacramental prayer. And uh, we'll move through those prayers here in just a moment. First of all, this from Robinson and Garrett. Jesus's body is the bread of life or the manna from heaven. His blood is the living water. Several references to John are are, are given with both of those phrases. And the wine of the atonement pressed out of him in the press of Gethsemane. As bread is made from crushed wheat and gives life to humans, and as wine is made from the crushed grapes when they are pressed, so bread and wine are ideal symbols for the body and blood of Christ, bruised and shed for us that we might live. By partaking of the emblems of the sacrament, we symbolically partake of his body and blood. We symbolically take Christ into ourselves and become one with him as he nourishes us and gives us life through his atoning sacrifice. As Israel under Moses partook of the sacrificial animals that brought cleansing and safety through their deaths, remember here that they partook of these animals, Uh, they didn't just sacrifice them, so we partake symbolically of the Lamb of God. "'sacrificed to bring us cleansing and salvation. "'Also when we partake of the bread and wine "'or water in faith and repentance, "'we receive the same blessings "'and restore the same covenants as at our baptism. "'And just as though those who are baptized "'are then given the gift of the Holy Ghost, "'so those who partake of the sacrament in good faith "'will then always have his Spirit to be with them. "'Because the bread and wine are symbolic only "'and are partaken of in remembrance only,' and not as a literal transubstantiation. It does not matter what we eat or drink in order to remember his body and blood. Consequently, it is common throughout the church today to use bread and water for the emblems of the sacrament. This is in accordance with the revelation received two months after section 20 was canonized uh, as Doctrine and Covenants section 27. When that section was received, wine and water were used interchangeably for the sacrament until about the turn of the century. Since that time, pure water has uniformly been the content of the cup. Robinson and Garrett's uh, use of the term content of the cup, I think, is is quite thought-provoking, actually. Uh, Elder Holland recently spoke of the way in which uh, that cup is passed to us during the sacramental ordinance, and we can think about the cup, the bitter cup that the Savior elected to take, so the contents of that cup. Uh, are reflected in the contents of that small cup that we take when we partake of the water Reynolds and Sojal have written or excuse me Smith and Sojal bread and wine these are the emblems bread is the proper emblem of the spiritual food we receive in the sacrament wine is here used as a synonym for the cup the term found in Matthew chapter 26 verse 27 uh, the same one that Edel Holland alluded to the essential part of the sacrament is that those who partake of it receive broken bread and drink of the cup in remembrance of the broken body and the spilt blood of the Redeemer, for the broken bread and the cup are the emblems. Both must be blessed, and both must be received by the communicants. Joseph Felix Smith has written, The Lord has given to the church very few forms. In the ordinance of baptism, definite words are given, which must be used by the priest or elder who officiates. The blessings on the sacrament are also set prayers. So now as we move into verse 76, we will read just how the sacrament is to be administered. And the elder or priest shall administer it, and after this manner shall he administer it. He shall kneel with the church and call upon the Father in solemn prayer, saying... So before moving into that, I would just uh, just add that we use the word sacrament so interchangeably with um, with with this ordinance, uh, but the word isn't used quite that way in the text itself. Uh, in a summary of the text, it is. It says sacramental prayers, but I think we do well to remember that there is a broader meaning to the word sacrament. Uh, but its most common manifestation for us as members of the church is this sacred weekly ordinance of partaking of bread and wine. In remembrance of the Lord Jesus. So, with that established, we just read this phrase that uh, the members of the church shall kneel with the elders of the church, or so it seems that that's the implication in verse 76. And it appears, says Robinson and Garrett, that in the early days the entire church knelt when the sacrament was blessed, just as in the Book of Mormon. We read of that in Moroni chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. This is largely impractical in modern congregations, though we must still have an attitude of humility and bend the knees of our hearts as the priest offers the prayers. It should be noted that all such changes in practice have been inspired with prophetic authorization. So I think that's really thought-provoking. We can appeal to our own experience in receiving the sacrament, but as we go back to this text, we can see that really, um, in spirit at least, we should all be kneeling as this prayer is said. So verse 76 says, Call upon the Father in solemn prayer, saying... So here's verse 77, and here is the first sacramental prayer that is offered uh, on the bread. O God, the Eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of thy Son, and witness unto thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy son and always remember him and keep his commandments, which he has given them, that they may always have his spirit to be with them. Amen. So there is that prayer that can also be found in the book of Moroni. And we can see that the bread is to be blessed and also sanctified. And of course the word sanctified has been used earlier in this section, which is curious We're told very explicitly that this bread is to be eaten in remembrance of the body of the Savior, and so we can think of His body and the way in which it was sacrificed on our behalf. Then we're told in this prayer that this act of so doing is a witness unto the Lord that we're willing to do three things. The first is to take upon us the name of the Son. The second is to always remember Him. And the third is to keep His commandments that He's given them. Then the reciprocal blessing that comes from this is that they may always have His Spirit to be with them, something that is spoken of so eloquently in 3 Nephi 18. Well, Let's go to the Doctrine and Covenants student manual now for some commentary on this particular verse. When we partake of the sacrament worthily, we signify our willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. Elder Dallin H. Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained what it means to be willing to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. He said our witness that we are willing to take upon us the name of jesus christ has several different meanings we take upon us the name of christ when we are baptized in his name when we belong to his church and profess our belief in him and when we do the work of his kingdom it is significant that when we partake of the sacrament we do not witness that we take upon us the name of jesus christ we witness that we are willing to do so the fact that we only witness to our willingness suggests that something else must happen before we actually take that sacred name upon us in the most important sense. Willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ can be understood as willingness to take upon us the authority of Jesus Christ. According to this meaning, by partaking of the sacrament, we witness our willingness to participate in the sacred ordinances of the temple and to receive the highest blessings available through the name and the authority of the Savior when he chooses to confer them upon us. When we witness our willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ, we are signifying our commitment to do all that we can to achieve eternal life in the kingdom of our Father. We are expressing our candidacy, our determination to strive for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. Again there, with Elder Oaks' comments, I think we can think of the doctrine of Christ, how it is that there is a gate of entrance, There's a path that must be traveled. And all of this is done in anticipation of the ultimate destination. And that ultimate destination is implied with the phrase, take upon us uh, the name of Jesus Christ, which will fully be done uh, when we are exalted in the celestial kingdom. Verse 78, the manner of administering the wine. He shall take the cup also and say, O God, the eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this wine to the souls of all those who drink of it, that they may do it in remembrance of the blood of thy Son, which was shed for them, that they may witness unto thee, O God, the Eternal Father, that they do always remember him, that they may have his Spirit to be with them. Amen. Well, why must blood be shed, and why must there be death? This is discussed in Hebrews. Amulek also discusses it very eloquently in Alma chapter 34. It's a grim necessity. There is a debt that is unpayable uh, by us that the Savior stood in our stead and paid instead. And for that reason, we link ourselves to him through covenant and avail ourselves of his saving power and of his saving grace. And the priesthood mediates all of this. We can see that the wording of the prayer over the wine is very similar to the wording of the prayer over the bread. The wine as well, or today water, is blessed and it is sanctified to the souls that partake of it, in the case of the bread, in verse 77, and drink of it, in the case of the wine or water, in verse 79. And then, instead of given all three things that uh, this is, is a witness of, in verse 77, uh, we are told that uh, we witness unto God, in the case of the wine, that we do always remember him. And so the other two things, the other two actionables that we find in verse 77 seem to be implied in this phrase that they do always remember him. And then, of course, again, the corollary that they may always have his spirit to be with them. The Doctrine and Covenant student manual says that the sacrament was administered by the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery on April 6th of 1830, the day that the church was organized. The Lord commanded members of His Church to meet together often, to partake of the sacrament in the remembrance of the Lord Jesus. Elder D. Todd Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained one of the reasons why it is a blessing to participate in this sacred ordinance. He said the sacramental prayers confirm that one of the eternal purposes of the sacrament as instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ is that we might always remember Him. Remembering the Savior obviously includes remembering His atonement, which is symbolically represented by the bread and water as emblems of his suffering and death. We must never forget what he did for us, for without his atonement and resurrection, life would have no meaning. With his atonement and resurrection, however, our lives have eternal, divine possibilities. Elder Dale G. Renlund of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles explained how keeping the covenant to always remember Jesus Christ can help us make better choices, he said, when our day to day challenges loom before us, it is natural to focus on the here and now. But when we do, we may make poor choices, become depressed, or experience hopelessness. Because of this human tendency, prophets have admonished us to remember the eternal perspective. Only then can we successfully navigate mortality. Each Sunday, the sacrament helps us remember God's goodness and marvelous promises by partaking of simple, tangible objects, a piece of bread and a sip of water. We promise to always remember the Savior and His great atoning sacrifice. Through the sacrament, we renew our covenants and express our willingness to keep His commandments. With the help of the sacrament, we can always remember Him and maintain an eternal perspective. Robinson and Garrett discussed the meaning of that they may witness, that phrase that we find in verses 77 and 79. Witness here means to affirm or to testify. So when we internalize those emblems, we are witnessing. Thus, this portion of the prayer states that those partaking of the sacrament intend to affirm that they are willing to take his name upon them, that they are willing to remember Christ, and that they are willing to keep his commandments, those three things. To the extent that they do these things, that they have publicly witnessed before God, they will have his spirit to be with them. Verse 80 Any member of the Church of Christ transgressing or being overtaken in a fault shall be dealt with as the Scriptures direct. And of course, the Book of Mormon offers quite a lot of instruction on that subject. Joseph Fielding Smith has written, The Lord anticipated the fact that there would be transgressors in the Church. We are reminded of the parable of the net cast into the sea, which gathered all kinds, some of which had to be thrown away. As long as the world remains in its present condition, there will be those who will not endure to the end. There will be the fault-finders, the critics of those who hold the priesthood, and the doctrines of the church. Therefore it is necessary that regulations be given for treating all transgressors fairly and with justice. Where the extreme penalty is inflicted, the names of those expelled are no longer to be kept on the records, but are to be blotted out. Verse 81. It shall be the duty of the several churches composing the church of christ to send one or more of their teachers to attend to the several conferences held by the elders of the church with a list of the names of the several members uniting themselves with the church since the last conference or send by the hand of some priest, so that a regular list of all the names of the whole church may be kept in a book by one of the elders whomsoever the other elders shall appoint from time to time So there are clerical duties that accompany the performance of these ordinances. We can see that very clearly here and earlier in section 20. Verse 83, And also if any have been expelled from the church, so that their names may be blotted out of the general church record of names. The Book of Mormon has similar language. Robinson and Garrett say the Lord from the very beginning of the church has allowed for the excommunication of those who violate their covenants and refuse to repent. When an excommunication takes place, the name of the excommunicated person is removed from the records of the church. By this action, they are mercifully released from covenants they will not keep, and they are returned to the world. Unfortunately, they are also denied certain benefits of the atonement, and can re-enter the kingdom only through subsequent repentance and eventual baptism. But as we can see, and as uh, Robertson and Garrett point out, there is mercy in this, because they are released from the covenants they will not keep very interesting language verse 84 all members removing from the church where they reside if going to a church where they are not known may take a letter certifying that they are regular members and in good standing which certificate may be signed by an elder or priest if the member receiving this letter is personally acquainted with the elder or priest or it may be signed by the teachers or deacons of this church It's remarkable foresight, I think, in this document, anticipating the need for membership records that will be kept and curated and transferred and assigned from one branch or ward to another when members uh, move from one place to another. Um, That was foreseen, of course, by the Lord and was included in this document, uh, even though the context for its original um, introduction, of course, was such a small, small meeting it makes us think of course of, of joseph smith's statement uh, later about um, those present knowing no more about the future and destiny of this of this church than babes upon their mother's laps joseph fielding smith has written the matter of record keeping is one of the most important duties devolving on the church and this is in church history and modern revelation if a man values his membership in the church he will guard with the most jealous care his standing in the ward or branch to which he belongs One of the most deplorable things with which we have to contend is the fact that members of the church will move from one ward or branch to another and fail to keep in touch with the local organization of the church. Sometimes this is done because such members desire to hide and avoid being handled for their standing. Others do this evil thing because they are afraid they will be called upon to attend to church duties, others out of pure neglect. Membership in the church is our very valued possession and treasure. Why? Because without it we are deprived, not only of the fellowship of the church, but of all its blessings, and a continued course of aloofness will in time place us outside the pale of the church entirely. Well, today it's common, I think, to differentiate between having an abiding belief in Jesus Christ and belonging to any one particular church, and those two things are separated and parsed out one from another. But here we can see that in the Lord's church and in in the context of his plan, there is perfect unity between having an abiding belief in the Savior and having a covenant relationship with him and in belonging to his church. His church is the organization that was implemented uh, with Adam and Eve, and it is the church of Jesus Christ, and it, it is It is in its final iteration, we might say, in this dispensation of the fullness of times as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it is in this church that we can find the priesthood authority that is necessary to allow us to make this covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and to avail ourselves of his saving power and his moment-to-moment grace. Well, with those thoughts in place and with anticipation of what is yet to come, This brings us to the end of Doctrine and Covenants, Section 20. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive, the Doctrine and Covenants edition. If this podcast has benefited you, please continue to share it with your family and friends. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me to prepare for this episode. They include Leon G. Otten and Max C. Caldwell's two-volume work called Sacred Truths of the Doctrine and Covenants, Stephen C. Harper's Making Sense of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Doctrine and Covenants student manual, which is used for Religion 324 and 325 by the Church Educational System. Stephen E. Robinson and H. Dean Garrett's A Commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants plays a prominent role in this podcast. Other valuable commentary has come from Susan Easton Black in her book 400 Questions and Answers about the Doctrine and Covenants. I also want to acknowledge the book by Daniel Ludlow called A Companion to Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants. And finally, valuable additional historical views have been offered from the book Saints, The Story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days, and from a book that is made available in the Church's Gospel Library called Joseph Smith's Revelations, A Doctrine and Covenant Study Companion from the Joseph Smith Papers. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as from time to time do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, and this year in particular in the Doctrine and Covenants, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, even the Lord Jesus Christ. I offer my personal witness that his attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know him better. So, have a wonderful day keep in touch. You can find me at barryhillam.com. And thank you for listening.